Hi, I'm Paul Grogan. And I'm Devin Norris. And we're going to be talking about the best board games of 2022. Just a quick note before we start the show, I wanted to apologise for the many times during this show that we are talking over each other. That's because there was unfortunately some time delay lag. I'm based in the UK, Devon's based over in America, and the software that we were using to record it unfortunately had this time lag built into it. It did make it a bit tricky to have the conversation, and unfortunately that's come out in this show. Let's just introduce Devon. Tell us a bit about who you are and your channel and what kind of things you do in the board game hobby. Sure. I'm Devin Norris. I have a board game channel on YouTube. It's called Devin Talks Tabletop. I've been working on that for about a year now. And then I also collaborate with Professor Meg and Alex Radcliffe over on Board Game Co. But I've also done several other things in the hobby as well. I do freelance writing. I've you know worked with some other publishers just in conventions and other stuff. I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, you know, trying to trying to spend as much time with uh, friends as I can. So here with Paul, we met at Essen and I'm excited to get to collaborate with him. Yeah, we ran into each other at the Chip Theory Games booth like on the last day when I was yeah. rushing back there to collect my copy of, of Hoplomarchus and you, you gave me a card and then I got in contact with you and then, yeah, yeah we decided to collaborate on this. So thank you very much for, for joining me. This list is based on votes from my Patreon supporters. So I did a poll on my Patreon page a few weeks ago where I basically got everybody to tell me what their best games were that they've played. And I specified, and I, I did this incorrectly, I will admit that this was a mistake, but I specified that I wanted them to only choose games that had a release date on BoardGameGeek of 2022. Now, mm. I, I, and, I, and I stuck with that, but after about a week, I realised that that was the wrong thing to say, the wrong thing to do, and it's actually <laughs> causing problems. And the reason for that is there is a game, for example, let's pick Ark Nova, um, which is officially a 2021 mm. game, but a lot of people weren't able to get it in 2021. They were only able to get it in 2022. And there's a lot of other games that are classified on BoardGameGeek as 2022 release date that a lot of people haven't got yet, mm. that most people won't get until 2023. So by me stipulating I'm only interested in the BGG release date, what that's done is there's a, that's actually caused a bit of a problem. Because if we do this same thing, you know, if we did this last year, Ark Nova wouldn't be on that list because not enough people had it. And then Ark Nova would not be on this list because I've said, no, I only want games from 2021. So... I don't quite know how I'm going to fix this for next time, but I will I will come up with something. <laughs> and I think I'll be a bit more lenient. And rather than sticking to the the BGG release date, it will kind mm. of be a, you know, and even if you've got this sort of in the next year, what I don't want is people to vote on, uh, you know, a game that was just new to them this year. Because otherwise we'll have people saying, oh, well, I, you know, Mage Knight's a fantastic game. And I was like, well, yes, it is. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's very old. It's so, been yeah. out for a while. It's, it's been out for a while. Um, now, even though the top 10 games that we're going to list here are voted on by my Patreon supporters, we're going to be adding our own commentary because I've got my own thoughts on them. Uh, Devin's got his own thoughts on some of mm. them as well. And then at the end of the video, uh, we're going to be talking about some of our favourite games that would would have made our top 10 list. Now, there is a reason why I'm not doing my top 10 of 2022 just yet. I'm going to give you some things at the end of this video. But, it's because you haven't got to play Ark Nova yet. Well, exactly. I haven't got... <laughs> no, but... You joke, but that's actually the reason why. I, I firmly believe... 
Um, and, and I'm the only one who believes this because every other content I created that I know is currently putting out their top 10 best games of 2022. The reason why I don't do that at the end of 2022 is for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are new games that have come out that I've not played yet. And okay, yeah, I could limit it to the games that I've played, which, you know, everybody does that anyway. But also, because Essen happens in October, and that is a big release date for a yeah, lot of okay. games, there's a huge number of games that have come out this year that I simply haven't played enough to know whether they are my, you know, favourite games of the year. Mm -hmm. Most of the Essen releases that have come out, I've only played once. And that's not enough. So I, I won't be able to give my definitive answer on what my best games of 2022 are, probably until around April or May of next year. Um, and that's the time. So it was next summer is the time when I've penciled in to do my actual own personal top 10. But let's see what's fair. I think that's fair. Number 10 on the list is Final Fantasy as voted on by patron supporters, is, uh, and the pronunciation of this game is an interesting point, but I'm going to pronounce it Teletum. Um, Tilitum, Tiletum, whatever, however you want to pronounce it. I've been told it's, it's Latin uh, and that it should be pronounced Tilatum, but this is from Board and Dice. Uh, this is the latest game, or one of the latest games in the T series of games. Um, mm -hmm. And interestingly, I liked this one myself, I'm not sure it would make mm. my top 10 games of the list, but I liked it myself a lot more than the general consensus of this game. When this game came out, there was some people saying good things about it, but there was a, there was a lot of sort of mediocrity comments uh, posted about the game. Uh, whereas my plays of it, and I think I've played it two or three times, I did enjoy it. Have you had a chance to play this one, Devon? So this is actually the title from Board and Dice that I know the least about of their 2022 okay. releases the one that caught my eye the most was terracotta army yeah. just like aesthetically and um you know mechanics wise that one looked the most of interest to me but uh when you send this list to me you know in preparation to do this video i kind of did like cursory inspections or glances at all of these games and i i'm i am a little surprised at the uh middling response that you mentioned mm -hmm. i mean because like right now on board game geek it's like an 8.1 right now okay. and uh for with over a thousand ratings so for a release that's just this year i feel like that's a pretty robust like yeah. response in terms of support for the game uh but i, I don't have any experience with this i have played uh teo Tiquan like a yep. long time ago um, but in terms of board and dices, like T series, I'm relatively, you know, bereft of experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, from my experience with most of the T series games and there's, I haven't yet played Tawantin Siu, but they were getting a little bit too complicated for my personal comfort levels. Um, and I'm glad mm -hmm. that this one, this one seemed a lot more streamlined. It wasn't a 45 minute rules explanation at the start. The dice drafting was was so simple, but but so clever. Um, you know, when you roll the dice at the start of the round and you place them on the thing, oh, well, you can take the six. The six is really good. But if you take the six, you'll get six of those things, but then you'll have one action point. Oh, or I could take I could take the two. Mm. I only get two of those things, but I get five action points. Basically, it adds up to seven. But, oh, so you get the inverse side. Yeah. Oh. So it, it's a it's a you know it's it's a toss up between. Uh, you know, getting getting the resources that you need to do things or getting the action points. Now, interestingly enough, this game has 
particular mechanisms, mechanisms in it which I personally don't like in games now. So one of the things that I've really gone off in in games is chained actions. And that is where I'm doing one action and that action allows me to move a counter on a track. Oh, and my counter has moved to this space. What does that space do? Well, that space allows you to do that action. Oh, right. OK, so I hang, hang on a minute. I'll put this action on hold while I now go and do that action. And then that action, and mm. then I come back to the... Right. I, generally speaking, I don't like that in games because my brain can't cope with that anymore. I lose track of where I am. <laughs> this Too game, much going on. This game has that, and I don't have a problem with it. For some reason... Mm. The chained actions in this game are relatively simple. The chained action is do something over there, done it, come back. It didn't, didn't feel that complicated. And the game actually comes with these action tokens. So I, I mentioned to you, if I take the two dice, I get two resources, but I get five actions. The game comes with these little five action counters. Well, it comes with more. But you, what you do is you take the action counters and then you go, right, I'm going to spend my first action, do that. Second action, do that. That triggers another action. I'll do that. And these action counters are deliberately in there so that you don't lose track of how many actions you have left. And I didn't need to use That's them. That's nice. So I, I, I'm oh, like, oh yeah, okay. I, I'm like, I'm definitely going to need to use those with my brain and my memory. And it's like, and I, I didn't need to. There was something about this game, you know, like a lot of games, you find games that some of them just gel with you and suit mm -hmm. you and fit into your sweet spot. And, and, and yeah, this game was one of them. So yeah, I like this one. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, so speaking on what you were talking about in terms of like the combinations where action chaining goes on, um, because you had, you, you've had your Patreon members like comment on, mm -hmm. on each of the games and, uh, you know, uh, the one in particular that, that Kay mentioned, she was like, I love all the combos in this game that you can generate and it's very satisfying, but it seems yeah. that it's combos at a level that doesn't, like you say, overwhelm like the processing that you're doing for the action you know, re resolving your actions. Yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't for me anyway. Um, so yeah, we've got some comments from the patron supporters. That, that was Kay's comment. Matthew said, it's a brilliant medium weight game uh, with high variability. Um, you got another one? Nice. Yeah, and then uh, Per said, interesting decisions with nice combos and interesting dice drafting. Yeah, so again, touching on the combo aspect of the game and the dice drafting. Uh, Emil's got a good comment. He says, as much as it looks like a dry Euro game, because to be fair, it is. You're traveling around Europe, gaining resources and helping build cathedrals and things like that. He said it's actually one of the best of the year. It's got an amazing action mechanism that you do in the game. And yeah, the action mechanism, as I say, it is simply just choosing a dice. But the way that those dice, they get rolled at the start of the turn and placed on the board. And then you've got to look at them and you choose which ones to take. So yeah, Telatum, I, I, I like of, uh... that. In terms of what Matthew said, you know, he said the brilliant medium weight with high variability and mm. speaking to your decision in terms of wanting to play more of the 2022 titles into the next year before you decide to do your top 10. Do you, yeah. like in the games that you've played of it, do you see the sense of high variability that you could make a lot more different decisions each turn? Uh, or, I mean, each game? I think there's different approaches to the game. I think there are different strategies. I... I I mean, I have played it a couple of times, but I'm not sure about the high variability because um, I've, I've got a mm. lot of games with, with a high amount of variability. You do distribute the cathedrals at the start and the slight variability in that. And there are these three fairs and they're slightly different each game. So there is some variability in the game. I don't think you can go into the game. You can go into the game with an overall strategy, but then you're going to have to adapt to that based mm -hmm. on based on what comes out. Um, so, yeah, this this. 
Fair. As I say, I liked the game. I'm not sure it would make my top 10, but as I say, I haven't done my top 10 yet for next year <laughs> or for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will see. <laughs> so number nine on the list is a game which absolutely, definitely would make my top 10 games. And I, and I can't see this changing whatsoever. This is Marrakesh. This is uh, a game in the Steffenfeld City Collection, which is a new collection of city games Uh, designed by Steffenfeld, published by Queen Games, but of the four that's been released, and this is number four, this is the only new one. So the other three that have come out, Hamburg, uh, Mm -hmm. Amsterdam, and New York City, are all re-implementations of older Steffenfeld games. Marrakesh is the only new one that's come out. I first played Marrakesh when it was in development. I played a prototype of it on Tabletop Simulator, and I was absolutely blown away by it. My favourite Steffenfeld game until that point was Trajan, and after playing Marrakesh, I was like, I, I mean, I, I remember the, I remember the time. I remember the things that I said. I basically said, look, I know I'm getting all caught up in the excitement of having just played a fantastic game, but this might be good enough to replace Trajan as my number one Steffenfeld game. Wow. Since then, wow. I've played it another three or four times, and I've demoed it a few times to people as well. And yeah, it's it's definitely in my top ten games of of, of this year. I can say that now. I don't have to wait till April. Um, and it's actually my current number one Steffenfeld game. So yeah, I love Marrakesh. What's your experience with mm. Steffenfeld games? So Trajan is one that I have actually played. Um, in terms of a lot of more kind of classic Euro designs, I am definitely uh, inexperienced or just like don't have a lot of them to my name. Uh, the, uh, in my play group around me, I'm the one that, teaches games right. and you know I feel like for a lot of content creators that is the case yep. <laughs> uh and so um I it's it's more that uh I the, the ones that I've played the most uh are ones that other people have taught to me so I, I have a few euros in my collection but they're they're really um not not there for the most part and it's not out of a lack of interest it's more just out of a lack of exposure mm. uh I they're generally titles that wouldn't fit for the people that I play with, which doesn't yeah. necessarily speak to my taste. Um, but it's just more like what I'm able to field on the table uh, with the people that are around me for the most part. But Alex in Cleveland has been probably the the biggest proponent of showing these games to me. Uh, and so uh, the Steffenfeld, you know, collection that came out from Queen Games, uh, I remember when they did the Kickstarter for like mm-hmm. all four of them. And and this was one that that certainly intrigued me. And to say that if Trajan was your favorite, which I mean, if I if I'm not correct, Trajan is the Moncala Stone yeah. moving one, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So if if that if that was a favorite of yours that has then shifted to you maybe thinking Marrakesh is even better, that definitely intrigues me because mm. I I played Trajan and I did enjoy it quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything similar about the games although a lot of people think all mm-hmm. Steffenfeld games are yeah. the same they're all they're all point salads you're all doing <laughs> stuff and things like this but one of the similarities that yeah. I do find between Marrakesh and Trajan is Trajan is basically made up of four or five little mini games each work in a different slightly different way mm-hmm. uh, and Marrakesh has that in there there's a yeah. number of different parts of the okay. game that all work slightly differently all with their own special rules but you're, you're putting it all together. My cat has just decided to join me, so if you hear a squeaking sound in the background, that, that will be Loki wanting food, because I haven't fed him yet this afternoon. No worries. Um, yeah, so let, let's Loki look at some, what some Patreon supporters have said. Jimmy says, 
Finally, a new original game in the City Collection that offers the delicious combo goodness that great Feld games are known for and keeps him coming back for more. Nice. And then um, Russell says, deep, fun, easy to teach, don't melt, or doesn't melt the brain, and great table present. Okay, easy to teach. I, can't I mean, speak. I, I've, I've taught the game quite a bit. I mean, I find it easy to teach because I love the game and I know it absolutely back to front. But because it has lots mm -hmm. of little little parts in it, you might find people going, oh, wait a minute, how does that bit work again? Uh, Willem says that Feld delivers his best game yet. So Willem's, Willem thinks it's his, his favourite game as well. Nice. And then Craig says, probably our favorite of the Feld City games. Great crunchy Euro with lots of paths to victory, loads of decisions that build towards a frantic couple last turns. Yeah. Do you feel the same way in terms Absolutely. of the final um, turns of the game? Yeah, it's basically it's divided into three seasons. And in each season, you'll get to place 12 workers. Um, so it, it will always be exactly the same. But what you're doing is you're choosing... Uh, well, not workers. Yeah, you've got these caches and you've got these assistants. Basically, you've got many different areas of your player board and you will activate each area once or possibly twice in a season. And then you'll be drafting caches based on what you've put in and then they get dropped into a tower and you draft them taken out and things like this. But you will do a bit of everything in the game, but you can definitely focus on a number of different areas and there are there are various things. But what happens, the core mechanism of the game is whenever you activate one of your areas of your player board, you either activate the area and get the ability of that area. So if it's the garden, then you will gain one date for every gardener that you've got. Or you can take another gardener. So it's, do, oh, do I want mm. something right now? Or do I want to hire somebody else so that the next time I get the action? Now, at the start of the game, you're not going to activate an area to get one thing when, when there's space for eight people. Yeah. So at the start of the game, most people are going, I'll have another one, I'll have another one. And you're building up these areas. When you get to the last season of the game, you're like, you're activating areas with six or seven things in it. And it, it does snowball and you get to do so many different things. And that's where it really, it really kicks in. You know, there's a university area with scholars and the more scholars you've got gets you these knowledge points. At the start of the game, you can do that. You don't get many knowledge points. So you get some basic mm -hmm. things. But at the end of the game, yeah. you get all of these nice, juicy bonuses. Um, so, yeah, it has a very nice crescendo to it that starts off quite slow, but then mm. ends up becoming, uh, yeah, re really big at the end. And just to give you an idea, at the end of the game, you get 10 points for every area on your player board that you have completed. Players will complete normally between two and four of their areas. So this isn't one of those games where mm -hmm. you're going to fill absolutely everything you are going to have to pick certain areas that you want to specialize in. And obviously the more you use those areas, as once you've built them up, the more benefits that you're going to get from it. But yeah, I, I, nice. I really like nice. it. Now it, it is it a big like box. It sounds like it's a massive point surge at the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is a big box and it is part of the city collection. So it is quite expensive and that has priced a few people out of the market for it. Um, but if you do get a chance to play mm -hmm. Marrakesh, if you're a Stefan Feld fan, it, it should be a no brainer. Right, moving on. Number eight. Number eight is a very popular game right now that's been talked about yes. everywhere and everybody's raving about it. This was just released at Essenspiel this year, and this is uh, the latest game from Days of Wonder, Heat, Pedal to the Metal, which is a Formula One yeah. uh, racing style game uh, based on Formula One in the 60s. And it is a adaptation stroke re-implementation re of Flam Rouge, which I've gone on record as yeah. saying is 
uh, one is probably my favourite racing game of all time. I absolutely love Flamme Rouge. This is from the same designers, but with a motor racing theme. Uh, and I've mm. I, I, I played one lap of it at Essen. I, I just did a quick one lap game of mm. it just to see what it was about. Uh, and since then, I've actually played it three times in the last couple of weeks. And I can confirm what everybody's saying about this game is absolutely spot on. Now, Days of Wonder are famous for doing some very big games. Like, I mean, they did Ticket to Ride, which has sold, I, I don't know, <laughs> 15 million, 30 million, however many million copies of it. A and lot of copies. A lot of copies. <laughs> Days of Wonder pretty much do one game a year. It's always released at Essenspiel. It's generally a family weight game, and it's generally really good production mm. values. And in the last few years, I don't think they've done one which has been a big hit. I might be wrong on that, but I'm struggling yeah. to remember. Yeah. Whereas this one, I mean, you can't go anywhere right now without seeing people talking about this game. Have you had a chance to play this? And if not, you've probably heard the same things I've heard. So I, I've definitely heard the same things you've heard. And then I, I just recently had the opportunity to play the game. So... Um, Alex and Meg were in town visiting. We were doing some some filming, some content. And then uh, another content creator who lives by me is Play the Game, which is Allison and Daniel uh, Burl. And so we filmed playthroughs at right. their studio here in Little Rock. And so we, we filmed a, a playthrough of Heat with um, a full five of us. And it, it was a lot of fun. We didn't play with any of the weather modules nope. um, or any of like any of those other elements that you can add in. And I'm very curious to see what those do. Uh, but we had an incredibly tight race. Uh, it was, you know, we had people that ebbed and flowed throughout in terms of managing uh, the the heat in your engine and yeah. the speed of the, the the length that you're going on the track. And for people that are familiar with the game, you know prepping for those corners that have a very limited uh, turn speed. And so it, it was, it was interesting. I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, but I will, I'm curious because we ended so close together. I'm wondering if that just happened to be how the game, uh, that particular game played out and the fortunes of all of us together as, you know, people who play a lot of games, or I'm wondering if the balance of the game is that tight and it's much more like a measure of inches rather than a measure of like, uh, you know, absolutely flying ahead of your opponents. So I'm yeah. curious to see in repeat plays how the, you know, and you've played more than me. So how, how yeah. did you feel about that in terms uh, of yeah. where I mean, people finished? The, the last game that I played was a three player game and it works fine at three players. It's, it's better with more, but it did work fine at three. It was kind of a learning game. And by one and a half lap round, the three of us were literally on adjacent spaces to each other. <laughs> I think, and, and it's an interesting conversation because there are a number of racing games out there, uh, motor racing games. There's a number of motor racing games out there. And the thing is, and I'm a Formula One fan, a game that replicates a Formula One race is not necessarily the best game because we don't want to play a board game and have, mm -hmm. oh, the, the guy's gone off into the lead at the front and... He just stays at the front and drives around and, and that's it. And Heat Pedal to the Metal yeah. has a number of mechanisms built into the game which encourage the close racing and catching up. So it's got the slipstream rules uh, and it's got the bonus for the mm -hmm. player who's in last place, which, which is one of the most unthematic rules I've ever seen in a board game ever. But it works in this <laughs> game. If you're in last place, you can move an extra space because of adrenaline. It's like... <laughs> 
Okay, so the well, and also from... the, the cool down that you did as well, and the cool down. Yeah, so he, he's he's not only is the adrenaline, but he's also getting a you know a fan out and blowing his engine. Yeah, that makes no sense. But it's a catch up mechanism, and without that, anything goes wrong for you, and you end up near the back, and and, and you're screwed. So I think I think you're right with what you're saying. Is that I think it's a combination of things, but there is definitely mechanisms built into the game in order to keep the racing tight. Now. There could be a downside of that. You could say, well, what's the point in making these decisions if the game is actually going to keep us together? But, it, it, you know, for, for the times I've played this game, every game has been exciting. It's been tense. And also, yeah. unlike a lot of other Formula One racing games that I've played, games don't take that long. I mean, you're looking at 45 minutes mm -hmm. to an hour for a game. It delivers what the game offers. It delivers it in a, in a good amount of time. And yeah, I've I've enjoyed all of my games of this so far. Now, like you, I've not touched on any of the any of the modules. Okay, you ha you haven't as well. Not okay. yet, but I have looked through them, uh, and I would definitely recommend mm -hmm. for your first game, don't play with those modules because it's it's forty five yeah. minutes to an hour. It's, it's okay. However, the legendary drivers module, which is what you use in the solo mode to represent other players, uh, people have said I've not tried that yet, but people have said that that mode is so easy to use that you could actually use it in a multiplayer game to make up the missing players. So like the three-player game that we played, mm. if I played a three-player game of it again now, I would use two of the legendary drivers just to give more cars on the track. Okay. Um, the weather rules look That's interesting. Good. That's good. But the other bit that I'm really interested in is the module where you get to draft cards at the start and every car is slightly unique. So you can have like extra brakes or four-wheel drive or things like this. And you basically get extra cards in your deck that replace the basic upgrade cards that, that make every car unique. So, yeah, it's got a whole bunch of these variability uh, variations and sort of like mini expansions all included in there. Um, does it replace Flam Rouge for me as a racing game? No, it doesn't. I still think mm. Flam Rouge is probably my favourite game out of the two because uh, Flam Rouge is a lot simpler um and i'm not saying mm -hmm. i like it i like it more because it's a lot simpler but i find flam rouge very very streamlined this has got a lot more going on it's a bit more complex with the way that you manage your heat and everything else um but i i did really enjoy it so um yeah heat pedal to the metal yeah. so i, I think the unique thing about games that you can compare to each other is yeah it, it may not be that flam rouge is better because it's simpler but if it's simpler and heat doesn't add that much more to like what you take away from it, then it's like, how much are you adding versus what are you getting out of it? And so mm. if Flamme Rouge to you like does what heat does, but doesn't have as much like add on, like things that you have to deal with or consider, mm. I can see why Flamme Rouge might stay there for you. But yeah. I do definitely see why people are raving about this game because yeah. it is a very engaging experience it like it, it to me when i was playing i was like oh i was like it's like ford v ferrari the movie yeah um so you know or like the board game or whatever and so it it, it felt very alive while we were playing it yeah yeah very much so and it's interesting because it's yeah by the same designers it sort of re-implementates re-implements flam rouge but initially i thought this was just going to be flam rouge but with cars and despite your fact that you've mm -hmm. got a hand of cards and you play those cards and that determines the speed that you go, there's some very, very key differences. So in Flam Rouge, you have your, your mm -hmm. deck of cards for your rider and they're one use only. Literally, that deck is for your game. There's no deck building aspect to it. You go through that deck oh, wow. as the game goes on. And when you mm -hmm. play a card to move, 
that card is gone from the game. It, it's, it's literally just gone. Mm-hmm. Whereas Heat does have a deck building access, uh, aspect to it. When you go through your deck, when your deck's empty, you shuffle your discard pile and back into the deck. Um, and the more you push your engine and mm-hmm. stretch your tires and things like that, you will be adding these Heat cards in there, which are going to penalise you when, when, when you draw them. So yeah, some fundamental similarities but also some some massive differences between the between the two games and that's nice to see because if they'd have just re-implemented flam rouge but with motor racing it actually wouldn't have it wouldn't have fit um you know the the mechanisms suit the theme of the game and there's one other thing i did want to mention about i do think go on i i was going to say that i do think that for the deck building aspect of heat because you're cycling through the deck rather than having one mm. one use cards and i haven't played flam rouge but if that's how it functions i think that i would really enjoy that because i feel like that's tight punishing and rewarding all at the same time but with heat because you're going through the deck i do like the idea of exploring those drafting cards mm. because i think that when you're taking like if you're building out the unique cards for that you really get the reward of that coming back and back and back through your deck yeah. depending on how you manage your cards yeah one of the things that i really like about heat is i mean we mentioned that you you play cards with numbers on and that's how far you move but sometimes you want the high cards and sometimes you want the low cards and there is some skill in the game in that you need to look because at the end of your turn you can discard any number of cards you want so if you're at the start of a really long straight and there isn't going to be a corner for like half a mile and you've got low numbered cards in your hand you want to ditch them but if you've got a sharp corner turn coming up you kind of want to keep those cards in your hand um because then when you go around the corner you can go around the corner at a higher gear come out in a higher gear so it isn't just a case of oh i'm screwed i haven't drawn my high cards it's like no you've got to manage those cards and decide which ones to keep in hand and which ones to discard. So, yeah, it's 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 just right. And I think for yeah. families, you know, going back to what I mentioned at the start about Days of Wonder producing family weight games, you can play the base game of Heat with mm. none of the additional modules, and it's fine. And it, I've, that's what I've played. I've not played any of the additional modules, and every game has been fun and every game has been enjoyable. If you play it with gamers who want something yeah. a bit more, that's when you start putting in the extra stuff. And the people that I've spoken to, gamers who've tried the extra stuff, have said they would never play without it. It's it's fantastic and yeah. it makes the game better. But, you know, if I was playing this game with a family on, you know, Christmas Day or something like that, you know, and the family was generally non-gamers, I wouldn't be using any of that. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go down that route of saying, oh, it makes the game better, yeah. so let's use it. And then watching blank faces stare at me through a glass of sherry. It's like, no, play play the base game and that that's perfectly good enough. So, And yeah, I think that's... the mechanic that uh, we haven't talked about at all, that I think for family weight makes such a exciting reveal and experience are those stress cards yes and being able to pull those out i mean that made our game when we came to an an end at like those that actually that made the climax that made the end of the game was those stress cards and i think for a family weight game if you're not bringing in those extra modules or those like variants that you can build onto the core experience i i do think that for the target weight class or for the target audience of like that core experience, I really do think that it's, it's well, it's well designed for yeah. that. Cause a lot of, a lot of racing games use dice for movement. And as somebody who, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago used to stand on a chair scared of dice like mice. 
Um, and I, I've sort of warmed <laughs> to the idea of dice. Dice do bring an excitement. You know, if you're there and you're on the last lap of the race yeah. and you're thinking, oh, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? I get that. I get that dice can add excitement. But this, but heat yeah. adds the excitement with the stress card. So, yeah, if you don't know the game, basically there are these yeah. stress cards that you've got and you play them. And when you play them, you will move between one and four spaces. You keep revealing cards from your deck until you get to a, a card that's numbered one to four and that's how far you'll move. So it's a little bit random. There's a little bit of variability in there, but it isn't just a dice roll. And quite often you will find that, I mean, the way that the mechanisms work is you can't discard these stress cards. So you are going to have to play them eventually. And that those stress cards At do provide point, that extra bit. And I remember the last time I played it, I was coming up to a corner, which I could only do at speed five. And I decided to play a three and a stress card. Now, if that stress card had been a one or a two, I'd have got around the corner safely. But it wasn't. It was a four. So all of a sudden, I'm going around the corner at seven, and then I have to gain two heat. because I. Yeah. And it, again, it, it's excitement. It's the variability. And I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head mm -hmm. by saying if you're playing a game with you know, non-gamers non or whatever, if it was just, oh, I'm going to play a four and a three, I'll move seven spaces, you'll go. It, it's kind of lacking a bit. But when you play those stress cards and you get that, mm -hmm. oh, what's it going to be? That's adding the same effect as rolling a dice, I think. So, yeah. right, let's look at what some of the Patreon supporters have had to say. Tim says, uh, it's a fun, quick game to learn that does an excellent job of simulating a classic Formula One race. Uh, it plays well at all player counts due to the Legends module. That's what I was mentioning earlier. It is a massive bonus. Mm -hmm. Tim says he can see this becoming a firm favorite for years to come. And Will uh, also did some comparison to Flamme Rouge, and he said he likes Flamme Rouge, but this takes its mechanisms to the next level, mm -hmm. which uh, I, I think goes off of what you said, given the simplicity of what Flamme Rouge has yeah. and some of the more depth that this adds on. Yeah. Uh, Andy's saying it's the best race game. He says tons of variability, uh, a race game that feels like a race. So when he says tons of variability, I'm assuming he's meaning with, the, with all of the additional modules that you can add on to, to shake things up. Yeah, and then Peter says it's a motor racing game that's simple and thematic enough, but most of all, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and finding a game, because I'm not somebody who plays fun games. You know, I remember whenever, whenever 20 <laughs> years ago, 15, 20 years ago, somebody had come to me and say, oh, Paul, I've got a, I've got a new fun game for us to play. Not interested, right? Because generally speaking, <laughs> when somebody introduces a game as a fun game, that means it's actually not going to be a very good game. For me, as where, where I was in my life, whereas now mm -hmm. things have changed and we're now getting games that are really good games, very, very cleverly designed, just excellent games that are also a lot of fun to play. Um, so, yeah, games yeah. can be can be good and fun, <laughs> as I've learned. <laughs> games can be fun. Games can be fun. Number seven is... Probably the heaviest game that we're going to talk about today, or maybe not, uh, but this is Weather Machine. Uh, this is uh, Vital Lacerda's latest uh, genius creation uh, from the team that, that, that bring us these big box games. So Vital Lacerda being the designer, Eno Tool doing the artwork and the graphic design, Eagle Games doing the, the production quality, the very, very good uh, production quality, and they've done a whole series of these games now. They're all the same size box. Uh, and they're all, you know, yeah. super complex, uh, heavy games. I was professionally involved in this one. I, I helped write the rule book for the game. Um, and I also did the official how to play video for the game. Uh, that was quite a challenge. Um, I didn't really get involved much in the actual development of the game itself. I just came along and, you know, did, did the rule book and the video. 
But if you take a demographic of my Patreon supporters, you know, a lot of people support me on Patreon because they they like the kind of games that I like and the kind of games that I'm involved in. So mm -hmm. it's probably safe to assume that any Vital Lacerda game is going to appear in their top 10 list. Uh, and, and this one, this one definitely did. Have you had chance to play any Lacerda games at all? Lacerda, sadly, he's like my secret board game crush. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I have not gotten to play any of his titles, but right. it's, it's, it's kind of a simply, again, the environment of yeah. my, my play group here. Uh, and, and I actually, I have, I have someone in the community that has reached out to me that has said, Hey, I have, you know, some of these Lacerda titles mm -hmm. I'd love to play. And it's just been a little, pretty much from Essen on has been a nuts calendar for me. Right. Uh, and I haven't really been able to schedule much outside of my, you know, responsibilities, but I would love to do so. Uh, it, not all of the Lacerda titles attract me in terms yep. of theme, uh, Kanban EV, I've always wanted to play. Yeah. Um, on Mars, I've always wanted to try. Uh, and then w Weather Machine is a, is another one. I, I haven't been as uh, enamored with uh, the Gallerist yeah. or Lisboa. I would right. totally, or or even Venus. I would totally be interested in playing those. Uh, but the other ones for sure have gripped me more with their theme. And then yeah. Weather Machine to me just seems like some crazy bioshock themed like extravaganza <laughs> that i w would be so interested to try so i'm not daunted by their weight i just yeah. think that naturally the weight of those games reduces the field or the like population of people oh, who are willing to play absolutely. them uh and so i th that's been my difficulty is if i'm working with other content creators um, that is a bear of a game to try yeah. and table um, in terms of time and when you in in the other things you could fit in that same slot. Uh, and then for the people that I teach games, that would be that would be akin to trying to like teach you know like logarithmic algorithms or something. <laughs> that would just it would just not be the game yeah. to, to teach to the people that I, I frequently play games with. Yeah. So I desperately want to. But uh, he sadly remains my my board game crush that I haven't haven't met yet. Yeah. Well, if you ever come over to the UK and you get to spend a little bit of time down in the southwest, then we can try it. I I'm a firm believer that I would 100. Uh, I, I mean, the gaming hobby is great. In that, we've got games for everybody. So we've we've got people who just want to play family weight games. You know, heat pedal to the metal, ticket to ride, just one code names, things like that, and that's great. And then you continue through the scale and you've got people that, who are only happy when they're playing a Vital Lacerda game and don't want to touch anything less. We're all gamers. It doesn't matter what you like. And I, I, I like to try and fight again, fight against. There's a train of thought in some people, not everybody, but some people who think that you need to keep trying heavy and heavier games because you're, you're more of a gamer if you play heavier games. And that, that's like, no, that, that's not true. Everybody has their own sweet spot of what games they like. Some games are more complicated for them and outside of their comfort zone. And some games are too light and outside of their comfort zone. Everybody has their own comfort zone. And the reason why I'm saying you should try one of these is because I want you to know and you to find out where you are. You might play a Lacerda game and you might go, yeah. I hated that. That was 
That was way too much. I spent five hours staring at the board without the faintest idea of what I wanted to do. And it was a one hour teach. You might hate it. Or you might go, oh my God, this was the best game I've ever played. And suddenly, you know, you, you discover that. And that's why I like introducing yeah. these games to people to know, so that they can find out what kind of things that they like and, and where, their, where their cutoff point is for what game is, is just too heavy to, to be enjoyable. Because I've got a lot of friends, and what yeah. you were saying earlier on about these games have a lower target audience than a lot of the other bigger popular games. And out of my gaming group and the people that I know, a lot of them will not play a Lacerda game because it's it's way beyond their comfort zone. They just don't enjoy it. They prefer to stick to the, the medium weight games. You know, on the flip side, I've got a lot of friends who like nothing more than sitting down and, and playing mm -hmm. one of these games. But there is a learning curve. Yeah. Uh, it's not, I'm not going to say it's a barrier to entry because that sounds bad. It is just a hill that you need to climb. There's a lot of rules up front. My first two games of any Lacerda game are literally just throwaway games where all I'm doing is pulling levers, pushing buttons to work out what things go. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have time for that, especially, you know, as, as a content creator, having to dedicate all of that time for two learning games, which aren't really could be classed as proper games until you actually get to explore yeah. it. Um, and where I am with my preference of games and my career now and everything else is that if I wasn't professionally involved in these games and I kind of hope that because I'm friends with Vittel I'm kind of hoping he doesn't watch this video but if I wasn't professionally involved in these games there are games that come out every year of a similar weight to this that I pass by mm. be simply because I don't have the time or the brain capacity to put in to you know to playing yeah. it and learning it to the point where I can actually enjoy it uh, now, thankfully, I, because I'm working on these projects, I do have to put in that time, so I do get a chance to try them. Um, but yeah, Weather Machine is is his latest one, and let's have a look what some people have said about it. Um, so Marco says, sure. uh, it's Lacerda, therefore it's in his top five games of the year by default. Um, he says, this one feels weird thematically, but mechanically is pretty interesting. So let's just touch on the theme, because when I was writing the script mm -hmm. for the video... I wanted to introduce the theme of the game at the start of the video, and I still didn't understand it. <laughs> so I had to ask, I had to ask fans of the game to explain that. And the reason why it's a little weird is there is this scientist called Latif, and Latif has, has created this weather machine, and this weather machine has caused mm -hmm. issues. So he's creating this weather machine for the good, for the greater good of, of the planet. So that, you know, if, if you're growing crops in a particular area, he can make it sunny. Or if you've got a, a winter resort or whatever, he can make it snowing so that there's always snow so people can go off and ski. So he's doing this. Unfortunately, there are side effects. There's the butterfly effect. So he's causing all of this bad weather all around the world. And you've got to try and fix it. But also in the game itself, you're, you're doing two things. You're actually working on the weather machine. Uh, and that's a part of the game that you can do. And that's causing the weather to get worse. But then there's another part of the game where you're building prototypes to try and fix the weather. And you're doing both of those things. And I think that's why thematically it might feel a bit confusing and a bit abstracted as to, well, hang on a minute. What are we doing? Are, are we are we the bad guys? Are we making the weather worse or are we the good guys? Are we trying to fix it? You're actually doing both. And the reason why it's explained mm. thematically is all about the greater good. The experiments must continue. Yes, we know the side effects. So we've got people fixing the side effects, but 
the work must continue on the experiments. The experiments must continue. Uh, so that that's why kind of you're doing both things in the game at the same time. But yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to me because I feel like I feel like Lacerda's other titles are maybe more just thematically grounded in a particular yeah. field, a particular area, whereas that that almost feels like thematic commentary, mm-hmm. like almost like. An interesting, like, social commentary, which seems to be a little bit more, you know, the nature of, I think, social commentary is that it's kind of, like, more gray rather than black and white. So, yeah, I, I can imagine how you're, you're, you're pushing both agendas and that seems to uh, contradict over the course of the game. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we're, if we're being honest, if I was to tell you what my... Uh, favorite Lacerda games were for thematic inter- for thematic implementation in a game where the machine would not be not be high on that list. I think some of his other games have a lot more thematic integration on Mars, uh, even Lisboa, uh, Vinyos, and certainly Kanban. The the me- the mechanisms of mm. those games I I think fit the theme of the game more so than more so than than whether, than, than weather machine. Fans of the game are going to absolutely hate me and have probably switched off the video by this point, but. That's that's just my personal opinion. So if you look, I mean, you mentioned Kanban. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the better ones. Um, definitely. So mm. yeah, try that one if you get a chance. So uh, other comments. Have you got a comment from Dorita? Yeah. So from comment from Dorita says, she's. I'm a huge Lacerda fan and this one has got his strong touch, though it is the hardest one to grasp, mm. which I think goes to what we were talking about. I love the artwork. I will not own it, but it was certainly one of the best of 2022. Right. Um, and I, I think that that is a, I feel like that's such an interesting examination of like where we are in the hobby, where we're, we're almost spoiled with games mm. in terms of like the, the glut of titles that release every year and the amount of stuff. And I, I do think that it's a very uh, like wonderful and also interesting thing that there can be games where we're like, Oh, this is like one of the best of the year. I don't feel the need to own it, yeah. but I can appreciate how amazing it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just touching on the artwork, Ian O'Toole is, he's just fantastic. Ian O'Toole is not just a great artist, but he does the graphic design as well. And yeah, for this game, it just looks, uh, yeah, absolutely spot on uh, comment from Andre. He says heavy, deep, you need to play a lot to get good. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying about the fact that mm. my first two or even three games of his are just, I've no idea what I'm doing. We'll just we'll just get through it. And by the end of that, okay, right, I now know the rules of the game and I know how to play. How do I now start putting this together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think uh, Hilmar says something that is probably maybe one of the best summaries for Lacerda ever, <laughs> yeah. which says, brain melter par excellence. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. It is it is a brain melter, and his games are not for the faint-hearted. Uh, and if you're watching this and you've never played a Lacerda game, then don't feel that you have to. As I say, I, I want to push against the narrative that you need to play heavier and heavier games to be more respected as a as a gamer or anything like that. That's that's completely not true. Try them if you want to, but just be prepared for you know a super complex game. And uh, yeah, that might be that might be something that you want to play. Number six is a game which is probably going to be in my top ten, but I've only played it once. And mm. This is Revive. 
this is the latest game that's come out from Aporta Games. Aporta Games have done some fantastic games over the years. And Revive was their big Essen release for this year. And I was very much looking forward to it. Um, mainly because everybody I know that read about this game beforehand was telling me about it and saying, Paul, you really need to play this game. This looks absolutely like your kind of game. And then the people who got chance to play it fed back to me and said, I've now played it. You really need to play it. This might be your number one game of, <laughs> of the year. So I was very much looking forward oh, wow. to playing it. And I have had a chance to play it. I've only played it the once. Uh, and I, I definitely need to play it more. But I was I was very impressed by my, by my first play um, of it. Yeah, what do you know about Revive then? Because it was one of the Hot Essen titles. <clears throat> so that that's what was interesting about this title is my brain kind of just doesn't even recall hearing about this. And right. I think my problem was, um, I think my problem was at Essen, I think I kept, when people were talking about it, my brain was hearing Resist. Oh, right. Which was which another was title that, that yeah, came yeah. out at Essen and it's you know short one word R E and so just when people were I think when people were talking about revive I was like oh yeah I was like resist you know the um, you know the uh, uh, what is it the yeah, resistance the World War Two game, game. Yeah, yeah. there you go so uh, I just I, I don't have any like schema in my brain no file folders that I remember anything about right. revive but. Since I left Essen, I, I've heard more and more people mention it, but I didn't even go look for it because in my brain, I wasn't thinking about that yeah. game. And so it's just kind of like a blunder or a lost opportunity on my part to inform myself. So I, I know nothing. I'm Jon right. Snow right now. So <laughs> Well, uh, it was share, sold share out you know. at Essen because there was a lot of buzz about this game beforehand. Um, I, I believe they're doing another print run and copies are going to be made available soon. I don't know the current situation of that. Um, but it, it, it's a very, very solid Euro game. There is a theme in there, but to be honest, mm. the theme could be anything. It's supposed to be like, you know, there's been a, is it post-apocalyptic or something like that? And after thousands of years, you're coming out of the hole in the ground and you're trying to sort of, you know, repopulate yep. and spread. And what it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the theme is. Does the theme come <laughs> through in the game? I, I I don't think so. But mechanically, as I say, for my one play, I thought it was just brilliant. The game's got a really nice curve to it in that every player has this player board. And the, if you just look at the player board itself, the player board is impressive. But what you start off with is you the player board has actually got these three tracks on it and all your tracks start off at the start. And as you move your pieces on these tracks, you're unlocking all of these special abilities. So at the start of the game, you're like, well, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to move over there and I'll explore this tile. Right, that's it. At the end of the game, you're like, well, I'm going to move over there. But because I've got this special ability, which I'm going to power up, that allows me to do this. And then I'm going to do that. And, I, and I've got a plus one bonus because of this. And then I'm going to do this. And you you join all of these things together uh, to give you all of these extra fancy things. And if you threw all of those rules into somebody at the start of the game, it'd be way too much. But as I say, it starts off nice and simple and it's got this nice curve to it as as the game progresses um yeah so based based on my one play i i really enjoyed it um i think there's a solo mode that i need to try out um and i definitely need to try the game a bit more because and this is my one concern about it it might just be that we had a freak game but bearing in mind 
we played a four-player game. Three of us hadn't played before. One person had played once, and that was the person doing the teach. There are lots and lots of ways of getting points in this game. And you get a card at the start of the game which tells you how you're going to get points, which I like. That's like a you know a personal objective kind of thing. But it isn't yeah. it isn't just as simple as that. You've actually got three little objectives on there, and it tells you how many points you're going to get for each of those objectives based on the number of artifacts you pick up. Now the artifacts are on the board and they're publicly available. So when you're, and there's three different colours. So if you've got an objective card that says, oh right, for every purple artifact you've collected, you're going to get one point for every card in your hand. You need to do both things. You need to get cards in your hand, but also you need to c collect the purple artifacts. And if another player starts picking up the purple artifacts, you think, oh, well they're going to want them because that's for their goal. So you've got that. You've also got four random scoring tiles placed at the corners of the board, which if you reach those cities, you're going to score points based on the criteria of that city. Uh, and then there was something else as okay. well. Now, what happened in our game is I won by a country mile, like 30, 40 more points than anybody else. <laughs> and it wasn't due to careful planning or anything like that. It was due to the fact that I had a, I had, what, each, each player has a particular faction ability. My faction ability allowed me mm. to buy more cards. I, on my scoring card, I then had, you will score points at the end of the game for every card that you've bought. Okay, well, there's a, there's a combo. I'll just do that a lot. Uh, Owen, one of the four cities gives you points at the end of the game for every card that you've bought. So about halfway oh, through the game, okay. I suddenly realised, wait a minute, I'm buying lots of cards because that's my faction's ability. I'm going to score points for those cards because of this and this. And I just hammered it. Um, and yeah. the concern was, at the start of the game, I was lucky. I got a scoring card that matched my faction power. Hmm. And one of the cities yeah. also matched my faction power. Therefore, I was at an advantage right from the start of the game without having to do anything, just because those things came out. Now, as I say, that's my, that's, that was my one experience from one game definitely need to play it more to see is that actually a problem was it just that the other players weren't very good is there is there something they could have done um you know in the game to try and get the similar amount of points i i don't know i need to play it more but mechanically loved it absolutely loved it thought it was thought it was really good in terms of you were saying the player board and the um kind of sequencing of abilities and like action resolutions that you can do on it. But uh, when we were talking about Teletum earlier, you were saying that it does chain actions, but mm. not in a way that kind of overwhelms the decision space. Did you feel that this one stayed in a good threshold yeah. to where you weren't like paralyzed? Yeah. And this is, uh, th this doesn't really have chained actions as such, whereas one triggers another one. It just has your player board unlocks these special abilities and these special abilities are like, free actions kind of thing if you spend energy so energy is one of the resources in the game and you basically unlock these machines and these machines get you to do cool things so you'll you'll be doing a lot more different things but it isn't one thing chaining after another but it, this was in my sweet spot uh if it was even 10 20 percent more complicated it would be too much for me with in terms of the decision space mm -hmm. but you're right once you get to the end of the game and you have unlocked all of this stuff suddenly your options become you know, wider, but it's the fact that you get there in a gradual way. You know, you unlock this ability on you this scale turn. up to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's gradually adding more stuff as the game goes on. Let's see what some of the Patreon supporters have said. So Graham has said, 
this game has depth without complexity, which is always nice to find. Um, now, the game is, I think the game's medium weight, so it's not, a, it's not like a simple, simple game, but it's relatively simple compared to, <clears throat> you know, a lot of other medium to heavy games. And it does have the depth. He said that the campaign doesn't work really and shouldn't be there, but in all other aspects, it's fantastic. So, yeah, there's a campaign included in this game as well, mm. which isn't like any legacy or anything like that narrative. It's just a lot of board games over the last few years have had this campaign added to them where different things will unlock the more you play or you can play different scenarios. I've not tried it yet. I've only played scenario one. Um, from my experience with it, scenario one was absolutely fine, but scenario two introduces a few extra rules. And it's, it's a way, a little bit like the, the way that you unlock abilities during the game so that there isn't a huge amount of rules or complexity overhead at the start, is that what they've done is they've said, look, this is the first game, play this one. Now for your second game, put these extra bits in. So you're introducing extra bits yeah. as as you play more games, um, but you know you call it a campaign and people like that kind of thing. Graham, Graham says that doesn't work too well, uh, and he, he says the campaign shouldn't really be in there, but in all other respects, it's fantastic. Yeah, and then Mark says it's got an engaging theme, and he loves that it feels both explorative and puzzly all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've got my own thoughts on the theme. Is that the theme? <laughs> is, is irrelevant but the exploration part is is really nice i love exploration in a game and you start off with all of these yeah. tiles face down at the start of the game and you are having to spend food to travel to them and you explore them and you don't know what you're going to get so that's nice uh paul says it's colorful uh reasonably simple rules and combo tastic so i think paul's referring to the yeah when you start unlocking the parts of the machine on your player board all of the different options that open mm -hmm. up to you and then uh, something that uh, we haven't touched on yet, Ian said that it's got a smart card cycling mechanism, mm -hmm. and then it's got asymmetrical factions, which I guess speaks to the ways that you can score, and then the ability to create your own engine via both the cards and the machines you add. Yeah. So one thing I, I, I didn't mention is that when you're unlocking your machines on your player board, there is a display of machines. So what you do is you unlock a space for a machine, and then you take a machine mm -hmm. from the display. And there's always three of each color on display. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're not just unlocking a fixed power. It's once you've unlocked that space, you then go, oh, I'll have that one. Uh, so you're actually building up your own sort of engine by choosing your choosing your things. Um, but, yeah, the, the yeah, this one sounds really, really interesting. Mm, yeah, very, sounds very really good. interesting. So that's, uh, that's Revive. So moving on to number five, and this is a game very close to my heart because I spent a huge amount of time and effort working on the rulebook for this game, it's ISS Vanguard. Uh, ISS Vanguard is Awaken Realms' latest big production game. They do these massive production games uh, with gorgeous mm -hmm. miniatures and everything else, and, and a lot of heavy narrative in their games. Uh, and they're kind of famous for that. You know, they've done Tainted Grail, they've done Etherfields and, and everything else. Now, one of the criticisms mm -hmm. that uh, has been you know, given to Awaken Realms over the years, and I believe fair criticism, is that their rule books are fairly subpar and contain lots of ambiguities uh, and make it, some of, the, some of their games, almost unplayable. Uh, I, I know when Etherfields came out, everybody was like, this is unplayable from the rule book. And they basically needed somebody to do a completely new rule book uh, to, to even play mm -hmm. the game. Um, but I, I got excited about ISS Vanguard because I was a backer of Tainted Grail I played Tainted Grail. I played the first campaign of Tainted Grail. 
And even though there were rules issues with the game and the gameplay issues with Tainted Grail, I, I agree with most of the gameplay issues, Tainted Grail for me is still my number one best narrative-driven game that I've ever played. And that is because of the story mm. and the immersive setting. And then when I found out the people who were responsible for that story and that immersive setting were doing a science fiction game, I was like, yes, I, I'm absolutely interested in this because um, the creative minds and the stories that they come up with were just were just fantastic. And I heard a little bit about what the story, the setting was for this game. And speaking of somebody who plays a Euro game and doesn't care about the theme, if I'm playing a narrative-driven game, I absolutely want to feel that theme. I want to be immersed in the setting. Um, and I've been a science fiction fan since I was a kid. And the concept of this game is that scientists discover that every single human being on the planet has got the same coding sequence hidden in their DNA. And it turns out that that coding sequence is the coordinates to a point in space. And therefore, as a human huh. race, we need to go to that point. They call them the, the divine coordinates or something like that. Well, straight away, I'm like <laughs> tingling with excitement <laughs> over, over that kind of... Because that kind of thing would make an amazing film, you know? And, and, yeah. and, and that yeah. ticked all of my boxes. And then... For me, one of the best things happened is that Awakened Realms took loads and loads and loads of direct criticism, uh, like in terms of people contacting them saying, look, you guys make really gorgeous games. Your games are fantastic. We, we, we love them. We, look how they, we love how they look. But your rule books are awful. And we're, we're fed up with it. And your last three games, the rule books have been terrible. We're not going to back any more games from yeah. you until you get somebody to write a better rule book. At which point, Awakened Realms get on the phone to me and say, Paul, we'd like you to write the rulebook for ISS Vanguard. Well, imagine how I feel when I'm already, <laughs> I'm already excited about this game anyway. So I've now, yeah. I've now officially technically retired from rulebook writing. Um, and ISS mm -hmm. Vanguard was one of the last rulebook projects that I worked on before stepping down. And it was one of the projects that made me question the decision about whether I should retire um from it i mm. said retire i still work like 70 80 hours a week on other stuff but you know I, I no longer write rule books and i got a chance to work with the creative minds at awaken realms specifically the designers and the people who put the story together and it was a joy it was a pleasure we were mm. on the same wavelength we were bouncing ideas off each other i ended up doing a little bit of development work on the game as well um now saying all of that i only played scenario one so it's not like because I worked on the project, suddenly I know everything about it and all of the secrets have been spoiled. No, I actually mm. don't know anything about the story beyond scenario two, I think. And I've not had chance to explore it yet. Um, but I can't, I can't wait. I, 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 can't, I can't wait. It's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. And a number of my patron supporters have been playing this game. Some of them have even finished the campaign um and and they said it was fantastic they said the story is great the narrative is brilliant the production quality of the game and the way that it's all put together is just uh is is just fantastic so yeah i'm i'm very excited about it but but not played it enough yet yeah i was curious about uh where your interest for this would would hook in because mm you know, based off of a lot of like the, the live streams or videos that I've engaged with you on, on your channel. And then a lot of, you know, the titles that we've talked about and kind of the maybe more focused sphere of interest of like a lot of your Patreon members. I was curious 
this this seems a divergent type of game yeah. for you compared to some of the other titles. Yeah. And so I was definitely interested to see what about this uh, excited you. For sci-fi for me is also uh, a very like thrilling um, you know genre, and it's it's one that excites me a lot. Um, it's why you know some of the Dune titles and other mm-hmm. sci-fi games that have come out in the last few years have been uh, so. Uh, you know, thrilling for me. Uh, but yes, no, I, I think Awakened Realms is one of those publishers that really knows how to develop an atmospheric experience and r- pull you in and satisfy that like sense of uh, discovery or mystery. That t- to me, they're kind of like the J.J. Abrams of the board game industry. Like they, they really know how to create an alluring product. Uh, for, for me, uh, my first experience with them was Nemesis. Right. And I'm still on the edge about that. I think I just had a bad experience and I really want to go back and give it another chance at some point. Uh, but the title that I probably uh, pulled closest to them on was The Great Wall. Yeah. Uh, I backed their second order of uh, their second printing is is where I became a backer for that. And I, I had an absolute blast with that. But I do think that their biggest hang up in the past has been their rules. Mm-hmm. They're um, non-engageable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult to, they're not accessible things to yeah. read. And, and I, you know, I take that from, from someone who like, I have a writing background and I'm usually really forgiving with a lot of, uh, maybe denser approaches or like convoluted approaches to rules, but it, it is a very, very, um, like v- visible weak point of theirs uh you know i'm failing to probably articulate myself well but this is definitely one that uh i i'm always intrigued by sci-fi titles my issue with this and probably why i haven't uh engaged as deeply with wanting to get this title for myself is the the just number of large narrative campaign yeah. experiences that have come out over the last couple of years. You know, I've got, I just recently gifted away Bloodborne to someone. I've got Oathsworn behind mm-hmm. me that I need to get back to. I've got Chronicles of Drunagor that I yeah. loved and I'm waiting for the, um, you know, the new rules to come in because a lot of times with these grand experiences, they're a little bit denser in terms of trying to, uh, you know, divine how to play. So ISS Vanguard is probably the one that's on this list that I'm just like trying to fight against my impulses of, oh my goodness, I want to grab this, I want to play this, and I want to like consume this material. So yeah. it, it's definitely it's definitely a compelling argument in terms of uh, a campaign adventure, a narrative adventure that I want to play. Yeah, and you, you know, you, you, you talked about it then, and it's absolutely right. Campaign-driven games you don't just want to get in and play a couple of games of it. You want to play the campaign, but that mm-hmm. requires a time investment, yeah. generally speaking, the same group so that you're together on the story so that things, things matter. You know, you don't want to start watching, you know, a season of the walking dead and then, you know, 
somebody join you halfway through and go, well, who are they? What's going on? What's that about? What's this? You know, <laughs> you've got to be there all the way through kind of thing. Um, and we do have a lot of these campaigns, you know, unfortunately, with the hobby being as it is, you, you said the word saturated earlier on, we are saturated. And that's good in, in one way that we have all of these great games out there that people can pick and choose. But when you've got people like me and you that want to play Frosthaven all the way through, we want to play Oathsworn, we want to play ISS Vanguard, we want to, and we're like, hang on a minute. Um, <laughs> you know, even, even though we don't have don't other have jobs to go to nine to five, this is, you know, we do this full time. We still don't have time to play all of these yeah. games. Yeah, there's just a lot of them no. out there. Right, let's look at some of the Patreon comments. So Adam says the writing is great uh the production values are awesome the ship management is so much fun and he, his group so he hasn't finished it can't wait to keep exploring so yeah just touching on the the ship management it's interesting because this game is actually two parts you've got the planetary exploration mm -hmm. where you go down to a planet uh, and you're moving around and you're rolling dice and you've got your characters and you've got everything else and then when the planetary exploration ends you do what's called the ship phase where you follow through this book uh, and you do things and the ship phase has been compared to a bit like uh, upgrading your base in XCOM. You're researching projects, you're mm -hmm. developing things, you're slotting cards from one place to another. Uh, and some people said, I hate the ship phase because it feels like admin. It feels like I'm bookkeeping and I'm doing all of this stuff. And other people have said, I love the ship phase because it feels like bookkeeping and admin and things like this. And now personally, I like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Oh, what are we doing next? Oh, we're going to go to the research. So we turn the page, move all my research projects, one along, spend some science, you know, things to develop this. Yeah, love, love that kind of thing. So, yeah, there is there is the ship phase, which is a kind of separate part of the game. And it takes about half an hour and you do that. You do it in between missions. Uh, what are the comments mm -hmm. have we got? And then Juan said, interesting gameplay, sense of exploration and then the ship development and an epic story. So I think that was just kind of a list of his four biggest highlights from that. Yeah, yeah. The ex the exploration and the narrative tie in together. You know, you go to a new card on the board, and it'll say, "Now read this part of the log." And there's a brilliant app as well, which is voice narrated, and you'll you'll access the log, and then it'll be the next bit of story. And even just the tutorial mission mm -hmm. is is quite cool. And the story that happens when you when you basically you arrive at these divine coordinates. And then it turns out that somebody's already been there. Well, who? And, and suddenly you're like, oh, you know, this is all really cool. Uh, Cliff is saying, oh, Cliff touches on the um, the app. He says the, the best voice acted application for a board game that he's encountered. The app is absolutely fantastic for the game. Uh, and the voice acting in it and all of the sound effects are really, really good. Awesome. And then Def says, Awaken Realms, best narrative game, in my opinion, with the best tutorial I've seen in a game. <laughs> the game is immersive as hell, and the mechanics this time are solid and provide a great experience between planetary exploration and the amazing ship phase. Yeah. So definitely have a fan there of the yeah. ship phase. Def's from the Board Game Barbecue podcast down in, uh, down under. Def's one of my one of my biggest fans. Oh, right. okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I know Mike, Michael and, yep. uh, and Jules from that. Yeah, cool. Right, so that's ISS Vanguard. Uh, next on the list, number four, is a game which I'm not surprised is on this list, and that is Endless Winter. Uh, another game which I did the rulebook for, but thankfully less work than it was for ISS Vanguard. Uh, Endless Winter is a, is a much simpler game. So Endless Winter is designed by Stan Kondoninsky, 
But actually, Johnny Stan Pat Cantin, yeah. yeah, Johnny Pat Cantin did a lot of work on this game. He's classed as a developer of the game, but to be honest, mm-hmm. um, he did he did a huge amount of work. You know, bordering on design. To be honest, if if I'm if if I'm fair, yeah. Uh, but Johnny Pat Cantin took the original idea and de- you know developed the heck out of it for for the time that he was working on it. Fantasia Games is yeah, his name appears on game. the expansions, but I think on yes. the core box it just shows Stan. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Fantasia Games, new company, their first game, and what a game uh, to have as your first game. Um, you know, massively popular, looks amazing. Been delivered to backers earlier this year, and I, I've mm. I've done loads of videos on this game because I've done videos for the base game. I did playthrough videos for all of the expansions, so I've played this game a whole bunch. Um, and in preparation for creating those videos, I played the game about five or six times just to sort of you know learn it. So I, I've played this game probably, mm. possibly more than any other game that I've played this year. And what's ironic is uh, we had a heat wave in the UK a few months ago. Um, and there was one day where we'd recorded the hottest temperatures that there's ever been recorded. Guess what I was doing on that day in this studio? I was recording the Endless Winter playthrough videos. We were literally melting when we were recording. It probably felt very nice and and warm in there, toasty. It was was ridiculous, and then it turns out there was a problem with the audio, and I had to scrap all of the footage, and we had to come back a few days later and do it all again. But anyway, I'll, we'll never forget that. We'll never forget that. Um, so, yeah, Endless Winter. Oh, that is a brutal, brutal technical problem. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the title. Um, this is one of the two on the list that I have played the most. I've right. played this, I think, three or four times okay. now. Um, and I've played it uh, base. I've played it base the two or three times. And then I've played it once with... Almost everything oh, right. I played with the cave pant- uh, cave paintings, with the rivers and rafts, with the uh, you know um, the a- animals module yeah. and stuff like that. So I've played with almost everything uh, in it. So I- I've experienced most of most of the game. And for me, uh, this was you know w- when this was kickstarting. Mm. Uh, I-, I think the difference for Endless Winter was in 2020 when it was like kickstarting and stuff like that. It was just kickstarting, and so it wasn't here yet. Yeah. But Lost Ruins of Arnak and Dune Imperium were physically re- released. Yeah. And so this was kind of one of those games where everybody was comparing those three yes. games because of the worker placement and the deck-building deck combinations. Yeah. But it was always like, well, this is how we feel about Last- Lost Ruins of Arnak. This is how we feel about Dune Imperium. And we think we feel this yeah. way about Endless <laughs> Winter. Uh and so it, it was very interesting to get it to the table. Um, Stan is a relatively new designer to me. I have Endless Winter. I really liked uh, Shadow Kingdoms of Valyria, if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that title. And then I just have, I think it's actually at my studio. I don't think I have it here at the house. But I have Resurgence, which I'm really excited to try out because it, it just recently came in. Um, but for Endless Winter, I, I've had a really good time with it. It's a title that uh, you know. For your viewers may not know, and I, you know, I don't know if I've talked about it with you, but Dune Dune Imperium is one of my favorite titles of the last couple years. Like I absolutely adore that game, Um, and you know the expansions that have continued to um, build it out even further. But Endless Winter, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm also wondering how much of it is like recency bias right of yeah. being a new shiny title that has come in and Very i'm shiny. trying to determine 
for myself, uh, how like where it will stack up and what the longevity of it is in my collection. But I, I have very much been, you know, you were talking about Weather Machine and kind of other more complex titles where you just kind of go in and you're just pulling levers. Mm -hmm. And I've felt that a little bit in Endless Winter because it's got such a variety of mechanisms that yeah. you can play with. It's got, you know, the deck building that you can do with the different characters. It's got the area control that you can do uh, where, you know, the monoliths in those different locations are with the tents and the uh, yurts villages, or villages. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the rivers and rafts and you can mix up the area control with that system. And then you've got the rest module and, you know, and then you've got the cave paintings. It's your classic so Kickstarter, it's isn't so it? Where, many... where so many things get, oh, and yeah. you can, there's this expansion. Oh, and there's this little module as well. So... <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of stuff in so there. It's, it's got so many different elements to it, but uh, I'm I'm excited to keep playing it, and I'm interested... Oop, my phone just smacked. Uh, I'm interested to see where my interest like waxes or wanes right. over time, but I've had a really, really good time with it this year. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've enjoyed my plays of it. I haven't mixed together multiple modules at the same time, so I have played with Rivers and Rafts, I have played mm -hmm. with Ancestors, and I have played with Cave Paintings, but you can add them all in. You, mm -hmm. you, you, you can do all of that. Um, my only concern with the game, and this is after playing it as many times as I have, um, and I've spoken to a few other people about this in the last month, is that by the end of the game, I feel like I've actually accomplished too much. So there's lots of different things mm. that you can do in this game. But once you've played it a few times, certainly my plays of it, I managed to get my, both of my idle tracks to the top. I've managed to get all of my yeah. villages out. I've managed to get almost all, if not all of my megaliths out. And I've managed to get seven cards in my burial pile. And it's like, okay, so all of the different things that you can do, I've kind of done all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and the other people around the table, they've pretty much done all of them as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if, if we're talking about personal preferences here, I would like a game where I can't achieve all of those things by the end of the game. I'd like to have to, you know, make decisions yeah. on do I want to focus on that, do I want to focus on that, or, or anything else. So, um, yeah, there was an interesting thread that somebody posted. Somebody sent me a link on to it last week because a few other people have been saying this about the game as well. Is that for the first era of the game? So mm -hmm. for the first two rounds, only have two workers. I was like, oh, so literally just hmm. give players less actions in the whole game. So yeah, two workers each yeah. for eras one and two. Uh, sorry, for so the rounds one and two. That would, that would reduce two. it down to 10 total worker placements yes, instead of 12. Instead of 12. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I want to try that mm. because, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll try it. It, it, might, it might be great. A lot of people don't think that's a problem with the game. Mm. And I'm not saying it is a problem with the game. I'm just talking about my personal preferences compared to something like Praga Kaput Regni from a few years ago where the game could go on three times as long as it does, and I still won't have achieved everything. Praga Kaput Regni is a game where you've got yeah. five different things you can do, and, and you might do one of them, <laughs> and a little bit of something else. I, I, I want somewhere in, in, in the middle of those two. But let's see what patron supporters have said. So Ian is saying that yeah. Endless Winter is not innovative, uh, but a smartly intertwined set of mechanisms and really great production. Yeah, I think Ian, Ian's right there. There isn't anything particularly new and exciting it just merges a lot mm -hmm. of existing things uh, together and what was interesting you touched on june imperium and on and lost ruins of arnak 
earlier on. And those three games, this, those two and Endless Winter, definitely draw comparisons because they're all worker placement and deck building combined together. And what's interesting is I was professionally involved in both Endless Winter and Lost Ruins of Arnak at the same time before they were announced. And it was like, okay, so both of these games are worker <laughs> placement and deck building. And and neither of them knew about the other. And then when I played Dune Imperium for the first time, I was like, wait a minute, I've got these cards. And if I play these cards, I get to do the top bit. But if I don't play the cards and leave them till the whatever phase it's called, I do the bottom bit. Well, that's exactly the same as Endless Winter as well. And I don't know if like, you know, the same thing happens with films where we got Armageddon and Deep Impact. I don't know whether yeah. two people were in a bar at the same time and went, oh, I've got an idea for a game. And then they just went their separate ways, forgot about the conversation, but then both developed a game with similar mechanisms. I don't know. It, it, it does seem a, yeah. bit too, <laughs> a bit too similar. Yeah, so, so Gene Rogers says, my best 2022 game, cool. deck building, exploration, construction, collection, everything is here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kitchen sink of, of stuff. Um, there's, there's definitely a lot of things. Uh, Ryan says beautiful art and production and my favorite worker placement deck building hybrid. So there you go. Out of those combination mm. of things, that's his favorite one. Yeah. And then James says, uh, the, the Miko's artwork, which I absolutely adore the Miko. So that's something else that I do enjoy about endless winter. And then James also says excellent components, fun, solo and multiplayer. Mm. See, I'm not uh, yeah. the Miko's so, biggest fan. I, I, haven't, I haven't done this one solo. Right. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Miko in terms of personal preference of art style. Mm. Um, in this game, I find half of it fits with the game uh, and the other half doesn't fit. I don't, I don't like his character representations, as I say. It's just a personal preference, and I know I'm in the minority on that. Um, yeah. Speaking about the solo game, if you haven't tried it, um, the solo game that's actually printed it turns out was was a little bit too easy um even on the hard mode mm. thankfully they have released some updates uh, so there is a there is a pdf available okay. online with some rules that will will make the 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 game harder because generally speaking in a game i will score about 120 points ish and i was finding that the nomad mm -hmm. player was scoring anywhere between 80 and 90 maybe maybe a little bit more than that but i i was finding beating the nomad still fairly easy even when playing on the hard mode um so yeah they've released a set of yeah. extra rules for those people who want to want to up the difficulty of that but to be honest you could just up the dif difficulty quite easily by saying the nomad starts with 20 points or the nomad starts with 30 points uh, you know something like that you can customize it in that way moving on to number three uh is <laughs> so this is the third game in the row that i've written the rule book for Nothing to do with me. Um, but yeah, these are not my... I'm, I'm sensing a pattern here. There is a I'm pattern, but a pattern. these are not my... <laughs> this is Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning is... Uh, John D. Clare is the designer. AEG is the publisher. Uh, and Dead Reckoning has taken uh, John D. Clare's card crafting system that he first introduced with Mystic Veil uh, and then Edge of Darkness and various other games to a whole new level with a massive, massive game, uh, pirate-themed game, Dead Reckoning. Now, Dead Reckoning, yeah, I got involved in this game quite a few years ago, was working on the rulebook with them for it, uh, and it's just, it's just epic. I mean, it takes the card-crafting mechanism that was introduced in Mystic Veil, which, for those people who don't know, unlike uh, deck building, mm -hmm. where you're adding cards to your deck and possibly removing cards, in a card-crafting game, 
your deck of cards is exactly the same. It doesn't change for the whole game. But what you do is that you slot in these transparent things into your into the sleeves, so you're you're changing the cards that are in your deck instead of adding and removing cards. And the way it works mm. in Dead Reckoning is very thematic. Because in Mystic Veil, it's a fairly abstract game. Whereas in Dead Reckoning, you've only got 12 cards in your deck, and that represents your crew. And when you slot cards in, it represents that your crew are getting more experienced. And they can level up, and you can flip the in the, the sleeves like round and that. things like that. Like so that. there's a the, there's a definite more thematic connection with with the card crafting aspect of this game. Um, but yeah, it's it's a whole extra level in terms of complexity from something like Mystic Veil, which is arguably a family weight game. But big successful Kickstarter, big production values. AEG have done a fantastic job with it. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you've had a chance to try this one yet or any of his other card crafting games. So, no. So D- Dead Reckoning, uh, when it was originally like coming in on crowdfunding, was kind of right as I was coming into like the r- review space or content right. creator space. And it was really before I had uh, gotten my first big wave of kind of crowdfunding fervor or, um, yeah. you know, you know, uh, obsession, however you want to, uh, you know, pay, uh, define it um so i kind of missed it on the front end and then uh this year because I, I think they did an expansion and reprint kickstarter if yeah. i'm not mistaken uh and so this year i've been taking a crowdfunding hiatus right. and so it's kind of uh in, in terms of getting in and accessing the campaign as a backer i've missed it both times yeah. but it is definitely one that uh i have been very intrigued by i like the idea of card crafting my biggest experience with that has been with uh the simon game hate okay uh which i really did actually like that game a right. lot but it was one of those games where it kind of like the core way to play hate was a two-player experience right. over like six hours because okay. you do like <laughs> two or three games in a row and that's just you know that that that's getting to the phase of like Star Wars Rebellion yeah. and Twilight Imperium, where like you need to schedule a large day for it, which makes it not very likely that it'll get to the table. So I I did like the idea of sleeving and, and adjusting cards, and I think that thematically, um, you know, I haven't played Mystic Veil, but as you mentioned, I think that's just such a cool thematic mm. tie-in to the way that the mechanics work. Uh, to have you know your your pirates gr- your crew grow in strength, grow in experience, and you adjust them based off of that. So uh, you know, I mean, on BGG it says card crafting meets four X, and that yeah. that alone is enough of a blurb to to you know pull me in. Yeah. So uh, I have not had the chance to play test this when it was earlier in the you know cycle, and I haven't had the chance to play it with a finished copy. But it's it's definitely like. On my list of titles that we've talked about, it's pretty much almost at the top of ones that I want to play but haven't had a chance to. And in a similar way to we spoke about Revive earlier on with the the fact that there's a built-in campaign, which all it essentially does is unlocks additional Mm. content that you add into the game. Uh, Dead Reckoning came, um, there's two Saga expansions, and then they went back on Kickstarter where Mm. there was a third Saga expansion. And basically that's just additional content. So what you do when you first play the game, your first few times you just want to play the base game, but then you will start with the saga content and you'll you'll play like chapter one and there'll be a little bit of a story. But basically what it's doing is 
adding additional content into the game so that you the more you play it the more repeated plays you have of it you'll be adding in new content which will include some extra variability some new rules and, and things like that and it gives it um you know it, it, it's blurring the line between your standard euro game you know like marrakesh which is just there's the game that's mm. it off you go and the big heavy narrative driven games like iss vanguard and oathsworn what they're doing is they're sort of introducing touching on that a little bit in board games but if they're doing it by gradually adding new content in that's great that's great with me i think that's that's a good way of doing it um i've i've played dead reckoning a few times i certainly played it um you know when i was invited to to work on the rule book i played it with the designer and the head of aeg and and people like that uh, and then i did i did i actually ran some blind play tests so one of my processes when i was writing rule books is right i've written the rule book I'm now going to give the rulebook to some of my friends and I'm going to sit there and watch them try and read the rulebook and try and learn how to play from the rulebook. And then I'll step in if they if mm. they get stuck. So, yeah, I've, I've done a few demos of the game and it was another one, a little bit like ISIS Vanguard, where I was very excited to see the end result. Because, you know, you're working on a rulebook. It starts off as a Google Doc and you've got prototype components and bits of card and things like that. And then when the actual final game arrives with all of Eno Tools artwork and... And it just looks gorgeous. It looks really, really good. Um, so some Patreon supporters' comments. We've got Matt, who says that the card crafting system is really fun and it connects well with the pirate theme of the game uh, and a nice production value too. Mm. And Bill says, another great card, card crafting game from John D. Clare. Only game that came to the table this year that everyone wanted to play again immediately after finishing good solo mode and great components. And I think that is one of the best compliments that you can give to a game yeah. when a group finishes. And no matter how long the game experience is, if their next thing that they say is, do we want to run it well, back? Yeah. Like that to me is like one of the biggest compliments you yeah. can give to a game. Yeah. Yeah. The solo mode, I've covered the solo mode on the channel. The solo mode is really good. Really enjoyed the solo mode. Uh, Corey says it's super fun and a unique 4X game. He loves the card crafting aspect and the two sagas currently out uh, bring the game up several points. So yeah, the sagas, Corey's played through the sagas, has yeah. added all of that extra content uh, and he says that just makes the game even better. That's a, that's a compelling argument. And then Tim says, I love everything about this game. The theme is fabulous and really shines through. The mechanisms make sense and I love being able to upgrade your ship and crew because every game feels different. Good, yeah. So it's no surprise that that's, that's number three on the list. So that's Dead Reckoning. Okay, we're down to the top two. Number two is from Chip Theory Games, and this is Burn Cycle. Now, Chip Theory Games don't do that many games, uh, but the games that they do do are big, epic, expensive, high yeah. production value, very, very high production value, arguably the best production value of any games that are out there um, and always very different. My first introduction to uh, chip theory games was with Too Many Bones and I, I, mm -hmm. I, I started learning it and I delved into it and then I realised the... I, I talked earlier on about the creative genius of the people behind Tainted Grail and ISS Vanguard mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I got that with chip theory games um adam carlson josh carlson and the other people at chip theory games i have so much respect for the way that they can just come up with so many crazy ideas and in too many bones there's yeah. so many different characters and all of those characters work very differently and massively in a unique way and i'm always very excited about 
their new games to see what they're doing. And Burn Cycle was no different. Burn Cycle is interesting because it actually is a bit of a change for them. So they've done Too Many Bones, which is essentially, it's a fantasy mm -hmm. cooperative, but it's a series of battles. Every day in Too Many Bones, you will have a yeah. battle which plays out like a tactical battle. So it's very combat focused. Their, their first game before they did Too Many Bones was Hoplomarchus, which has got a new version that's coming out right now. But Hoplomarchus was a gladiatorial yep. combat game where you're ba it's, it's basically it's, it's another mm -hmm. skirmish fighting game. Then they did Cloudspire, which I think is absolutely fantastic game. But Cloudspire is basically a combat game where players are fighting and everything else. And then Burn Cycle is not a combat game. In fact, if, you, if you're in combat in Burn Cycle, you're playing it wrong. Because um, Burn Cycle is set in the future and you're actually playing robots that are infiltrating human headquarters to try and steal stuff. And it's a game about stealth mm -hmm. and evasion. You are moving around the board trying to avoid the patrols and using your skills and abilities to go, go unnoticed. And it's basically it's an infiltration style game. So whilst mm -hmm. there are combat rules in there, <laughs> that's not the primary focus of the game. Um, but Burn Cycle sure. takes all of the boxes of a typical chip theory games game in that the production quality is through the roof. It looks fantastic. The combination of, uh, of neoprene uh, with the chips and everything else, but they've, uh, you know, as a company, they've evolved over the years and they've now got a much bigger team. Their earlier rule books were not that good. Too many bones is one of the worst rule books that I've ever read. Um, but the rule, the later <laughs> rule books, and I didn't really have anything to do with these much. I did help a little bit with burn cycle, but not much. Um, but the team that they've now got working on the rule books for their games are really good. They've got, they've got a much stronger team uh, for that. And the Burn Cycle rule book mm -hmm. is, is, is really good. Um, but again, touching on what I mentioned about Too Many Bones, there are so many different characters, so many different bots that you can play in Burn Cycle. And every single one of them plays very differently because they have unique powers. And it's not just like, oh, you can move four, I can move three. It's no, no, you've got this game-breaking power. Oh, and you've got this one. And you build a team of bots to do the mission. And there's so many missions in this game. The the, the variability and the replayability, the huge, just, just the sheer amount of content that you get with this game is just, is mine. Mm. But that's what you get from Chip Theory Games. You don't just get games that you're going to get out, play a couple of times and then put away you're going to get games that are massively replayable with a with a huge amount of variability. So Devon, yeah. Chip Theory games. So uh, you and I have a <laughs> you and I have a shared love for Chip Theory games. Mm -hmm. Um I think that not only and this is something that I not everybody cares about. It's something that I care about. Um not only are they fabulous designers and um you know pr producers of their titles like they have such a good um, quality of what they bring into the board game space. They're also just fabulous people, yeah. um, which makes it that much easier to love yeah. their games because they're just good humans. Uh, so I, I'm, I have a big, big, big place in my heart for Chip Theory games. They're fantastic. Burn Cycle, I agree with you, is a um, is a split from kind of the style of games that they had created. It very much seems, and, and I think that might be a little bit. Um, confusing uh, to people who aren't aware of that going into it because it has the, you know, 
classic, the iconic chip theory games production, yeah. you're like, oh, it's a chip theory game. It's going to be similar to Cloud Spire where, you know, you have lane movement and a lot of combat with asymmetric factions, or it's going to be similar to Too Many Bones, which is really like a story day-based combat, you know, cycling, you know, campaign adventure. Uh, but with Burn Cycle, it really is, it's a stealth dungeon crawler. Mm -hmm. And emphasis on the stealth yeah. now there are some bots who are more you know predisposed to be equipped for combat but for the most part it is an evasion and an objective hunting you know movement game and you're really you're you're fighting against the clock because the amount of time you take that threat is going to continue to escalate and you really need to move and progress and that means not getting bogged down in a fight yeah uh I will say, like before, I you know, w you know, wax lovingly on my you know appreciation for Burn Cycle. I will say that my caveat for I think most Chip Three games titles is I think it's a one to two player game. Yeah. I think when you get to three and four, I think they are very unwieldy at that size, having that many players around the table. Um, when you have just a kind of a condensed one or two people who are, you know, controlling the pace of the game. I think they move much smoother. Yep, I agree. Uh, though I do think that for Burn Cycle, as you said, uh, they have they have learned and they have gotten better at rule book, um, rule book writing in terms of being able to make it through there. Uh, having the – something that I have been familiar with since I started because for me in the hobby – I kind of a lot of my favorite titles are classic fantasy flight games yep. titles, uh, and I'm familiar with the split learn to play booklet yeah. and rules reference. Um, and I think that is such a sensible approach when you have a heavy, yeah. dense title like something like Burn Cycle to say, "Hey, this gets you in on the ground floor." And then if you need to like clarify anything, we have you know, the primer to look at yeah. and to make sure you're doing everything right. And so I think that Burn Cycle is their most accessible title yet, largely in part thanks to that rule book. Yeah. Um, so they did a much better job this time around. But Burn Cycle is such a, such a clever game. The way that the different bots interact, the way that you really get to experience different strategies and also... You know, talking about ISS Vanguard and Oathsworn um, and larger titles, uh, you know, you mentioned the narrative app for uh, ISS Vanguard. I think that bigger titles that make it um, more approachable to play to whatever person or circumstances you have, the more you make it accessible, the better chance they have of actually tabling mm. your game. So, you know, for uh, when I, I first demoed Burn Cycle with Shannon and actually Alex from Board Game Co. a long time ago, and we played one floor, yep. and then she was like, there's two more floors, yep. and it's going to get crazier. Yep. Uh, and I was like, wow, that sounds awesome, but also that sounds like a really long game. Yeah. Uh, and so... The fact that they made it to where there are missions that only take the place over one floor mm -hmm. or two floors or three floors. 
and the fact that you have different types of missions that you can do and you have different corporations that you can go yeah. up against really means that you can kind of create the exact burn cycle moment that you want to have that day. Do you want to have a really tense, taut, one and a half hour experience on one floor? Or do you want to have like, you know, a four hour day mm. going across three floors and having this really kind of like scaling up, you know, immersive experience over the course of time. So I think they did a much better job in making it um, customizable yeah. to what you want to do. Yeah. And then also the production once again is, oh. is beautiful. Yeah. I think that, uh, I, one thing I like about having the flat map and then having the neoprene rooms on top of it is that the chips actually nestle between yep. those rooms yep. in a way that feels like they're on that floor. Yep. Uh, and I don't know if that was an intentional height thing that they actually thought of, but it feels like you're in, you know, a little office crawling experience. Yep. And then I really don't try to push people towards deluxified or fancy things very often. Um, but those brass minis that mm. they made are maybe one of the most insane components yeah. I've ever seen devised for a board game, period. Yeah. Uh, you know, just having like these full metal things that you magnetically a adhere to the chips is just... Chip Theory Games is ridiculous. They, they, they um, are ridiculous kind of with some around. of the things that, that they do. I don't have the brass mags myself, but a, a number of my followers do, and they've sent me photos, and they said they, these are just... These are just fantastic. They look great. Now you touched on, you said, oh, They're you can crazy. do one floor in an hour and a half or, you know, three floors in a day. My playtime, and I've played this a few times now, we were looking at two and a half to three hours per floor. Now we were still learning it. Mm, and one yeah. of the other big differences, I think, between Bone Cycle and, let's let's talk about Too Many Bones and Hoplo Marcus, is so, uh, Too Many Bones and Cloudspire. Too Many Bones and Cloudspire have less mm. rules overhead in terms of the core rules of how the game works, but then you have dozens of mm -hmm. keywords and all of the keywords change the yes. way that the game works. Burn Cycle has Ugh. a huge amount of more rules to the core game, like maybe double, but there's only like five keywords. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all of the special abilities of yeah. the bot. So in terms of a rules overhead at the start, there's a lot, there's a lot more in Burn Cycle. But yeah, our... The games that I've played, I mean, the first game, okay, that was a learning game. It doesn't really count. But then the second game we played, we, I think, took about five or six hours. And that was only for two floors. So, yeah. Again, Too Many Bones is not a short game, right? Cloud Spire is not mm. a short game. Chip Theory games do this. Their games do tend to be quite long. Um, but they're worth the investment if you if you like that kind of thing. And, yeah, very, very different, very, very different style. My biggest problem with Burn Cycle is I don't think mm. I'm going to get the time to enjoy that amount of content. You know, if you were to say, yeah. I'm going to come round tonight, my teleporter's working, you're going to come round tonight, forget all of the work that I had to do, let's play Burn Cycle, I would have to put in a lot of mental effort to relearn it to the point where I'm comfortable with it again. And I don't play it enough yeah. to do that. But then again, I could say that about a lot of games. Cloudspire is a game that I've been wanting to get back to the table for the last year and a half. And I know that when I do, my first game of it is going to be, oh, right, okay, I need to remember how how the AI movement works. And I had the same problem with Burn Cycle in the way that the patrols move. 
I found that quite tricky. Now, the rule's fairly clear, and there's loads of examples, but I was like, how does this move again? I, I, okay, I'm within... Burn, I'm burn within Cycle was unique. Burn Cycle was unique for me because I feel that way about every other Chip Theory Games title. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like I play it once, and the fact that I didn't immediately play it six more times yeah. means that the next time I try to table it, I'm going to have to refresh myself. Yeah. And I've actually had conversations with people uh, about this because for me, like I have Cloudspire and I haven't played it in over 18 months yeah. or two years or something because of when I first covered it. But I think Cloudspire might be my favorite title from them. Mm. But I don't know because I haven't been right. able to get back into it. Uh, and Burn Cycle was just happened to be, um, I played it previous to several other people in the content creator space who I then taught it to. Right. And so I taught it to like three different people. I played it six or seven or eight times. And it just got to the point where I feel like if I didn't play, don't play Burn Cycle for another six months, I could pick it up and have a relatively clunky free first right. play with a few, oh, okay, yeah, that's how that works. Um, and so Chip 3 Games, if we are going to say one cr criticism about Burn Cycle or about maybe their titles in general, is that if you invest in it, and if you invest in it enough to where you feel comfortable with the rules, it can truly be a marvelous yeah. gaming experience. If it's one of those titles that you bring out once every six months, it's you're going to struggle. Yeah. I, I just I don't see how you couldn't. Yeah. Let's have a look at what some Patreon supporters said. So Jimmy has said that Burn Cycle is a great soloable cooperative game that constantly keeps you on your toes and already includes a massive amount of content to explore with more already on the way. Yeah, the solo game of this where you're just controlling one bot. Um, I mean, their solo mm. modes are, are also really good. The solo mode for Too Many Bones, well, is essentially the same game as Too Many Bones, just with one character. The solo mode for Cloudspire is quite different. Um, but the solo mode for Burn Cycle is essentially it's just you and the the extra bot that you have to take with you. So it, it's there's no real changes, I don't think, in the solo mm -hmm. game. It's pretty much the same as the multiplayer game. But yeah, comment there about the content. And then, uh, yeah, Seth says, wasn't sold on Burn Cycle during the crowdfunding campaign, which I think is fair, mm -hmm. uh, given what I've heard from quite a few people. Yeah. But playthrough videos changed my mind on it. Amazing theme cool puzzly decisions and tons of variability between the different bots. Yeah. And that's probably something that we haven't clarified yet for people who aren't familiar with the game. Every bot plays Not entirely different than the other bots. But even on top of that, if you flip the bot over, that's how you can choose that particular bot to be the control module. Yeah. And then that alone also has new variability to it. So the combinations that you can create between yeah. the bots are ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Seth also touched on one of the things that I don't think we've mentioned is about the puzzly aspects of the game. And that's the same with all of their games. You know, when I was doing live streams of, of, of Too Many Bones, it was essentially a puzzle. How, how are we going to do this? Sure, it's combat and you're fighting and you're rolling dice, but there's a puzzle in there. Cloudspire is also a bit of a puzzle uh, and Burn Cycle is, is the same. Uh, Sergio says, Chip Theory Games at its best. Love the chances for cooperation and the variety in the missions. Yeah, because the different missions, they all play out very differently as well. Mm -hmm. um, there is so much content in the yeah. box. In his opinion, it's the best looking game from Chip Theory Games. And then Mark says, 
this is something new done right and with the CTG production, yeah. which I think given what we said about Burn Cycle being a little bit of a departure from some of their previous styles, I think that is a good yeah. good analysis yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, to, to be fair, they do games that are different. You know, Cloud Spire, I don't have a game in my collection that is like Cloud Spire. Burn Cycle, I don't have a game in my collection that is like Burn Cycle. You know, I've got hundreds of Euro games that are all mm-hmm. dry, themeless Euro games. They're great. I love them. But yeah, cheap theme games definitely do things outside of the box. Right then, it's time for number one. So the number one game, which actually got more votes on my Patreon supporters by far than anything else, is Carnegie. Yes, a very big, a very big difference. Very big difference. Now, I've previously gone on record earlier on this year to say that Carnegie is one of my favourite games of the year, if not my favourite game of, of, of 2022. So personally, I agree with that being number one. Carnegie was just amazing as as a as a euro game i absolutely loved it i've played it a whole bunch and the solo mode's good uh the the game design the game mechanisms the gameplay the interesting decisions that you have to make on your turn the i'm not a big fan of having to plan ahead too much but in this game it's just about right the action selection mechanism is 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 excellent ian o'toole did the artwork and the graphic design and everything about this game is great. Now, one interesting thing about this game is this game was actually playable on Board Game Arena for a long time before it came out. Now, normally, games mm. go on Board Game Arena after it comes out when they make a deal with the with the publisher and they get the game available online. But what they did is they actually coded the game on Board Game Arena and not just a knock-up version with, like, you know, black and white graphics, with the actual graphics for the actual game and then they analysed mm. all of that data from all of the games on Board Game Arena and allowed it to help huh. the development of the game. I don't know any other game that's done that. Sure, games come out on Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia for people to play, but not on a proper online gaming platform like Board Game Arena. That's um, brilliant, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really good. So the designer of the game is uh, Javier Jorges. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. Now, I've been a fan of this designer, even though I can't pronounce his name, for a very long time. So he did a game... I'm going to say 2006, called Palais Royale, or Royal Palace was the English version. I love that game. If I was to ever do a, a top 10 video mm. of amazing games in my collection that almost nobody's heard of, that would be one of them. And interestingly, Carnegie uses some of the same mechanisms from that game. The way that you have the workers okay. and they all arrive on one particular space and then you have to spend movement points to move them out to the departments but no carnegie is just yeah fantastic I, I i love everything about the game and it was i think my first game i was like wow this is so good and then i played a second game of it and i went this is by this is this is my game of the year absolutely this is this is my game yeah. of the year <clears throat> now it might still be my game of the year i haven't decided yet give me another few months but if it isn't my number one it will probably be my number two it it's very, very good. Have you had a chance to try this one? Interesting. So, no, I have not had a tra- chance to, to, oh, <laughs> I have not had a chance to try Carnegie at all. Uh, it, I, it's one that I have heard enough people talk about that I know that it's, it should be on my radar. Um, again, it just falls into a category that is harder for yeah. me to, um, to get tabled uh, or know people who would play it. I will say that 
to me, like, I, I think that what you mentioned, like putting it on board game arena, letting people have access to it, that just seems like a really smart design and development mm. choice. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of titles that come out that, you know, people are like, this is amazing. This is good. And they, they rate it highly and it kind of fades a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think it probably is a testament to the design of this game that it is, you know, you know, Arc Nova is one that blew up the ranks yeah. and stuff like that. But for a game to come out and in the space of that same year for it to do what Carnegie has done, because Carnegie has broken into the top 200 of all time on yeah. Board Game Geek, which is that's that's an yeah. achievement for a game the same year and you know it's got almost 5000 people that are talking about it on there so it's it's one that uh there are some games that I'm like oh you know it seems like people are really interested into it but I can definitely see that uh if people aren't talking about it in a year then I you know th there are other games for me to go on about yeah. and it's probably just the fact that it's the cult of the new mm. uh but it doesn't seem to be the case for Carnegie no. just given the amount of overwhelming reception that it's had and the positive feedback yeah. and so it's one that uh, I'm excited to play uh you know you mentioned the designer I think is Xavier Jorges yeah um but so Royal Palace it looks like that was 2008 but 2000, then okay. 2009 he worked on Carson City, yeah, Carson and that is one of that that is one of Alex's like favorite games right. that not as many people love or know about that he adores, and so that's been a compelling one for sure. And then also uh, uh, Twa and Gigantopolis yeah. and Black Angel. Yeah. So I mean, just a pretty heavyweight designer in terms of titles that are really really popular. And uh, I, I haven't played it, but I definitely want to. Yeah. Well, if you fancy a game on Board Game Arena. Let me know. More than happy to do that. I only I only play asynchronously I do, on board I do game love arena. Board game arena. So oh. um, yeah, cool. Um, let's let go to some Patreon comments. Um, oh, one thing before we do, you talked about Carnegie holding its uh, popularity and everything else. It, it's had way more votes on this list than than anything else, and it came out, yeah. at, I think, at the start of the year. So this isn't mm -hmm. a you know, as you say, a lot of games come out, people talk about it for a month or two, and then it fades. This one came yeah. out quite early on in 2022, and yet it's had way more votes than than anything else at the end of the year. So it's definitely mm -hmm. stuck with a lot of people. So Martin says that he loves the variable setup, the fixed number of turns, and the options to pick end game scoring. The art is a bonus. Yeah, the way that the end of game scoring works in the game is that occasionally during the game, one of the actions that you can do is to make a donation. What you're doing is you're funding, because that's what Carnegie's famous for, donating money and funding lots of things. And what you're doing is you've got all of these end game scoring objectives at the start of the game and you're, you're spending your time and money to place discs on them. Uh, so you're, you're competing mm -hmm. with the other players for that. So if I'm collecting a certain type of thing, then you might go, oh, well, Paul's probably going for that end game scoring mechanism and you could, you could go there instead. I mean, you wouldn't do that if it wasn't going to be good for you as well. But mm -hmm. the fact that you're competing for your end of game scoring objectives is, is really nice. Nice. And then Brenda says, great two-player and solo game, trying to strategize your pathways to points and keeping an eye on your opponent, which you just mentioned, real or automa, makes this game so satisfying. Yeah, the, the, the solo game is, is really good. Now, I've played this at one, two, three, and four-player. It works great at all-player counts. But one of the mm. things in this game that I think Brenda's touched on is you absolutely have to keep your eye on your opponent because... A big part of the game is moving your employees around your offices 
And then when you get to activate those offices, it's where your employees are. So I'm looking at you, we're playing the game and I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute, you've just moved your employees all to there. So I think I know what you're planning to do. So therefore mm. I will move my employees to these buildings so that, because it, it, it uses the Puerto Rico sort of mechanism of you choose an action and then everybody gets to do that action. So you, you can't just mm. play this game in isolation. You need to be looking at your opponents. You need to be looking at what they're doing. Mainly because if you know what action they're about to do next, you move your employees around onto those buildings so that, oh, you're, you're choosing that action. Well, it's good that you've chosen the research action. I've got all of my people doing research. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, Dorita says, simple mechanics, uh, but sophisticated planning mode. Uh, it's got the programming feel. Yeah, you definitely need to take your actions in a certain order, like, you know, getting new employees in, moving the employees around and then doing the action. Some of the actions return the employees back to your start or put them out on the board. And you've definitely got to do those things in the right order. Um, she says, yeah, beautiful production, great solo mode. Graphics are fantastic. Nice. And then Chris says, beautifully lean design where everything meshes together really well without any unnecessary fluff. That's a very good comment, Chris. There's a lot of games these days, and I think we've touched on a couple in this discussion, where there's maybe too much added. You know, there's, there's, there's a mm -hmm. bit too much thrown in, whereas Carnegie, you know, it's a medium weight game, maybe medium to heavy, probably medium weight. And there is quite a lot going on, but it's tight. It does feel lean. It doesn't feel to me when I've played it that... It feels everything in there is needed for the game to work and there isn't any extra bits on the side that aren't doing anything you don't need. So yeah. there we go. Uh, now, in terms of that list comparing to my own personal top 10, as I mentioned at the start, a lot of my patron supporters are patron supporters of mine because they like the kind of games that I do. So it's no surprise that looking through this list, most of them, I think, will very likely make my top 10. Not all of them, but I think some of the ones on that list, yeah, more than 50% of the ones that we've talked about would make mm. my uh, my personal top 10. What about you, Devin? How many of those top 10 would match your own personal top 10? Go on, say none of them. Let's see. <laughs> In terms of ones that I've got on mine, yeah. uh, Burn Cycle and Endless Winter right. of the ones I've played, are on. they're on my top 10 for the year as well. Yeah. Uh, in terms of ones that I think probably would be if I had played them, uh, I think Dead Reckoning, uh, Carnegie would be on there. I liked Heat, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure that my experience with it would push it above other titles that right. I've played yep. this year. I did have a good time with it, um, but uh, I just it's not usually the one that I would keep coming back to the well on, yep. uh, but for sure. And then honestly... Revive might also be there just based off of the the stuff that you mentioned and the mechanics of it. And I, I really like with with Carnegie and Revive both. Um, if I'm going to play a Euro or I'm going to play a game that has maybe more design, you know, emphasis that's in mm -hmm. that kind of classification. Uh, like you mentioned in Carnegie, you said you want to make sure that you're being aware of what your opponent's yeah. doing. I have a lot less interest in Euro games where the point of it is to beat the game. Right. And I have much more interest in games where what I'm doing directly affects or is affected by yeah. other player decisions. And so Carnegie definitely seems like one that would be uh, on my list. And Revive just sounds like a lot of fun to explore how those engines and machines yeah. 
uh, play off of each other. So I'd probably say Dead Reckoning, Carnegie, and Revive right. might be short list ones if I had played them. Yeah. Um, but Burn Cycle and then also Endless Winter Definitely. were on my list. Yeah. I mean, you know, like like everything, we mentioned this at the start. There's so many games coming out. Uh, <laughs> and that's why oh, I get my patron supporters to, to put this together because, you know, uh, you know, when when I do my top 10 games for 2022, people will reply to my video and say, well, why have you missed such and such a game? And it's like, well, I haven't played it. You know, if I played it, it might be on the list. Um, right. Let's just talk about yeah. a few games then, which we think, I mean, you've already done your top 10 of 2022. I've not done mine, but I'm now going to talk about a few games which are very probably going to be on my top 10 games of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, and a couple of these are not, widely available yet and i think if they were widely available mm. they 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 would have got more votes so for example frostpunk frostpunk is being delivered to backers right mm. now i've got my copy early uh, one of my friends in the uk has got their copy yeah. early but most other people haven't so frostpunk is not widely available yet now it did get voted on by patrons uh, as being one of their favorite games of the year but not enough votes for it to appear in our top 10 if we did this in a couple of months time I think we'd get very different results. I mentioned early on that if Carnegie mm. is not my number one game of the year, it will be my number two. Wow. And that's because Frostpunk wow. is my favourite game of the year. Uh, mainly because the rule oh, is really yeah, good. I... <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of rule books that I'm no, very I, I certainly... happy to have finished my career writing... The Frostpunk rulebook is, yeah. is also one of mine, but yeah, that's not the reason why I love. No, I, I watched you playing. I watched you playing this title, uh, oh, a, maybe a few weeks ago yeah. or a couple weeks ago, and it, this is this is a game where when I came in and was became aware of crowdfunding and Kickstarter and stuff, like this campaign was just it was active, I think, yeah. and it was one of those times where I I couldn't justify throwing yeah. one hundred eighty or two hundred dollars, which at the time, not being aware of crowdfunding sounded like an insane yeah. amount of money. I mean, granted on some of the crowdfunding stuff I have done since, <laughs> maybe more within the realm of reason. Yeah. Uh, but I just, it, it wasn't one that I ended up doing and I kind of regret it. Um, I have had, so I, I just recently built a new PC. Right. Previous to that, I've had some middling laptops. And even though I've had middling laptops, I have had Frostpunk down or like in not installed but just purchased on steam yep. for a couple of years and i just haven't had the opportunity to play it i just recently installed it on this pc because i want to try it out and it, it's definitely that's one of the few games of 2022 that i i haven't had the experience to play yet but i just feel like is right right in the like sweet spot of the type of game that i would love yeah. to play yeah i mean the the computer game is either my favorite computer game of all time or one of my favorite computer games of all time so when i heard that they were doing a board mm. game version of it designed by adam kwapinski you know i i was i was straight away you know interested in the game and then i was lucky enough to be yeah. asked to work on the rule book for the game and yeah the, the end production has just been fantastic and yeah i love playing the game now nice. let, let, let's sort out the criticisms the game is hard the game is very very hard it is a depressing game to play because you're literally struggling to try and survive um it is primarily a solo game a number of people have said why would i ever play this multiplayer when you're all kind of 
making the decisions. Now, I would always prefer to play this multiplayer because I like making those decisions with somebody else and blaming them when it all yeah. goes wrong. Um, but, I, you know, I get that. It, this is a solo board game that you can play with more players if, if you want to. Um, but yeah, just absolutely love it. They've, they another another new studio, you know, Glass Cannon Unplugged, a new publisher that has mm-hmm. been set up, and they they've done a yeah. fantastic job with this one. Um, it looks really really good. So yeah, I, I think that's definitely going to be on my list for next year. It, it's probably my number one game of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the reason why it didn't get enough votes is because people haven't got it yet. Same with Frosthaven. Frosthaven is is technically a mm-hmm. 2022 game. But how many people in my patron sports yeah. have voted it as one of their favourite games? I don't think it got any votes because nobody's got it yet. <laughs> you know, uh, or maybe it, it's being delivered to people literally. You know, while we're recording this video, I think Isaac is driving around California right now, dropping copies off at people's houses. Um, but yeah, Frosthaven is technically a 2022 game. Now, I have played it, yeah. but not enough yet. Uh, I will be playing yeah. it more in the in the coming months, and that that is definitely going to be on my list because I love Gloomhaven. I think Frosthaven is a better version of Gloomhaven because it's tweaked a few of the rules, quality of life improvements, uh, and the overall campaign system is mm-hmm. is just better. Other games, uh, Perseverance, Castaway Chronicles, um, that mm. that did get some votes. Mindclash, yeah, Mindclash did get some votes, not enough to make it the patron supporters top ten. That's probably going to be in my top 10. I really, really do enjoy Perseverance. Um, Undaunted Stalingrad. Mm. I need to look at that because I think Undaunted Stalingrad is fantastic. I need to play it more and I need to evaluate whether that would be in my top 10. I'm saying it might be. Um, Sky Mines as a a Euro game. Now, Sky Mines is a re-implementation of Mombasa. I say re-implementation. It's basically a re-theming of Mombasa. It's 99% the the same game. Um, but in the same way that Carnegie compared to Frostpunk, Frostpunk is just an amazing experience to play. Carnegie is just an absolutely solid, brilliant Euro game. Uh, Sky Mines is similar to that. Now, Sky, uh, Mombasa did have the problem that I think it worked best at four. It was okay at three and not great with two. Sky Mines has fixed that by adding an AI opponent, the Luna, that you can play with a two-player game to simulate... A third player and you can actually play with two lunars so you could play a four player game with only two real players so sky mines is very very good yeah. and it might be up there and not to forget a game which i'm super super excited about and i'm going to bed every night with the rule book and that is hoplomarchus victorum again oh i'm excited technically a 2022 yeah. game but backers don't have it yet you know no one so that's yeah, yeah. that's why it's not appealing. so they are my Favourite games of 2022, which which weren't on mm. the top 10 list, and I think some of them, Frostpunk, Frosthaven, Hoplomarchus Victorum, haven't made this list, I think, purely because they're, they're, they're not available yet. So definitely yeah. interested to do it uh, do it again. So what, what few games do you want to mention that are on your top 10 list that we've not talked about today? Yeah, I can give a quick shout out. I, I made a I made a list uh, of games, and I, I ended up doing twenty just to uh, go through in right. ones that I enjoyed. But out of the kind of top ones that we haven't talked about, um, number one for me is Oathsworn. Right. Um, I really, really, really like Oathsworn. I think it's a brilliant design um, in terms of accessibility for large campaign games, which we've talked about mm-hmm. a little bit. 
having a truncated story version if you just want to blitz through yeah, the narrative uh -huh. and go to the boss battling. Um, the companion system, if you're trying to adjust what player count or the uh, management of the heroes that you're fighting, um, everything about that game just uh, speaks to me and my my interests and preferences good. in terms of gaming. So I really love Oathsworn. And the rule books really um, other good ones for that as well, on there it? for me. <laughs> it is. It is actually quite. An, did you work on it as well? I, I wrote the rule book for that game. Yeah, I didn't. I, I'm not responsible for any of the narrative oh. or any of the campaign text or anything else, but. I worked a lot on the uh, on, on the rulebook for that game. One, one thing about Oathsworn that I do want to mention is, you, you touched on it, the companion system. So in terms of player scaling, a lot of these games, like, mm -hmm. scale. You know, oh, you can play two, three, or four players, like Gloomhaven, for example, and it scales. Oathsworn doesn't scale whatsoever, because you always play four characters. If you're playing a four-player game, you've each got a character. If you're playing a three-player game, it's three full characters and one companion. And if you're playing a solo game, it's one main character and three companions. So it is basically, it's a four character game. And the advantage of that is, is that there's no, in other words, as a designer, you don't need to bother with any scaling or anything like that. It's just, there's the game, there's the difficulty mm -hmm. setting, there's the monster stats, and you, you always need the four characters. But the companion system works extremely well in that you, you, you know, the maintenance and how much you need to manage on the characters who aren't your main characters, it's really good. Yep. No, I totally agree with everything you said. Um, I didn't know that you worked on uh, the rules, but I, th I thought the rules were some of the most clearly delineated, most, like, sensible, like, the, the form of clarity in that rule book I thought was exceptional. I yeah. thought for a game of that size, yeah. it reads so smoothly um so excellent job uh, you know <laughs> kudos, kudos to you paul you did a, you did a fantastic job um uh, how, in terms just, of just uh, other question, 2022 titles quick question about oathsworn how many chapters have you played oh so i haven't even i haven't even pushed into the depths of it i've done the first encounter okay. numerous times because of you know demoing and other stuff but i've done the second encounter so yeah. i'm two encounters in so i haven't even I haven't even touched on it. And also because I was, whenever I was playing through those, I was live streaming them. Right. So uh, I was doing two main characters and two companions. Oh, right. Okay. And then I also did the, I also did the, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, instant action mode. Yep. So uh, I would much prefer though to do the narrative with, yeah. you know, with, um, oh, I just forgot his name. Uh, James. Yeah. That guy. Cosmo. James yeah. Cosmo doing the narration. Uh, so I, I desperately want to do it like in a more immersive thematic yeah. experience. Um, but I even just two encounters in and seeing the differences in how those two boss battles happen and how the story could be quite uh, unique compared to the decision space that yeah. you have um, on the story mode. Um, it's just it's my kind of game, yeah. like through and through. The the choose your own adventure part of the game, which is the bit you do before the encounter. Mm -hmm. I think the narrative is really well written. I think the stories are good, um, and and you know I grew up with choose your own adventure books, so that that's nice. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, it's a game that I definitely want to play more. Um, but the bit that I saw when I was working on it, I, I wanted to get. We talked about earlier on immersive narrative driven games that suck you into the the setting, the atmosphere. Uh, mm -hmm. The immersion, Oathsworn, I think has that, and I just need to give it, give some time to it. 
So yep, 100%. what else is on your list? And uh, I've got some other titles, uh, but I won't go ad nauseum into them. But in terms of ones that I appreciate, I really like Wonderland's War. Mm -hmm. I think it is a very enjoyable uh, and uh, very clever bag building, push your luck game that I think probably the best part of it to me is the different uh, like A, B, C, D variants that every single chip has that you can put into it so you can really create kind of a unique bag building experience depending on how you want to put into it. Um, I love Foundations of Rome. Right. I think that that is one of the few times where I actually think the deluxification of the game adds to the accessibility right. and approachable nature of it. Being able to pull out that tray and get it on your table. Um, I think that, yeah, that's one of, one of the only times when I would say it makes sense that it's as expensive or as big of a production as it is rather than just having a bunch of polyomino yeah. cardboard tiles. Um, I really like Caesar, Caesar Roman 20 minutes. Um, I'm a fan of Blitzkrieg okay. and the new one by Paolo Mori. I really like Caesar. And then Encyclopedia yeah. from Holy Grail Games is I think a very, uh, it's a very clever design. I like a lot of that. So those are kind of like ones from my top 10 uh, that we didn't talk about that I was just interested in. Yeah, Wonderland's War I've heard a lot of good things about. Uh, Encyclopedia definitely looks like my kind of game. I might need to contact Holy Grail Games about I that. I think you would like it a lot. Yeah. Um, one of my friends brought it around the other weekend uh, and was playing it and said, yeah, yeah, you're going to love this. This is really good. So I do know uh, the guy in charge at Holy Grail Games. I've just not really reached out to him and asked him for anything. And I always feel guilty about, uh, you know, yeah. asking publishers for, for games when I've still got a pile of games that I haven't played yet. But gradually, if I can get that <laughs> pile of unplayed games down and covered on the channel, mm -hmm. um, that's that definitely one I want to look at. Yeah. So, no, I, I think out of all the ones I mentioned, uh, Encyclopedia is one that I would recommend to for you me. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Right. Well, this has been great. It's been fun. We've gone on a lot longer than I thought yeah. we might, but this has been a really good conversation. Um, so just before we disappear, uh, just remind everybody where they can find your content. Because you've mentioned that you've done a number of playthroughs on your channel. So just tell people yeah. where they can get to your channel. Sure. Um, you can find me in uh, several different areas. My, my main channel that is for me personally is Devon Talks Tabletop. It's a YouTube channel, so you can go over there and check that out if you want to. Uh, additionally, I work with Play the Game here in Little Rock, so we do kind of like seven, eight camera, multi-cam, high-quality playthroughs of games, so you can go check out their channel as well. And then I work with Professor Meg and Alex Radcliffe over on Alex's channel, Board Game Co., and so we are doing video collaborations there uh, whenever we are able to sync up with travel and stuff like yeah. that. So those are my three things, but my primary one is my channel. Yeah. So that's Devon Talks Tabletop. And I'll put a link to that in the description. So yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Things that we need to do moving forward. Of course. We need to get a game of Carnegie in. If you're happy playing a game asynchronously on Board Game Arena, we can do that. hundred uh, percent. Yeah, and I need to play Encyclopedia and you definitely do. I definitely do. Definitely do. Right. Excellent. So just before we disappear, just wanted to say a big thank you to everybody for watching this video. I hope you've enjoyed it. Give the video a like. Obviously, subscribe to my channel. Subscribe to Devon's channel if you can. Uh, and if you've got any comments about any of the games we talked about, what game was in your favorite game of the year that, that we haven't talked about? And also, of the games that we did talk about, 
do you agree with what we said or did you not agree with what we said? I'm always, I, I, I read through all of the comments on YouTube, no matter how many I get, because I'm always interested to find what, what other people think about it. Uh, and I also wanted to say a big thank you to all of my patron supporters, not only the ones who, uh, who gave their opinions and we've used their, uh, their thoughts on, on making this list, uh, but also for funding the channel. This is obviously not a sponsored video. Um, so the only reason I'm able to make these videos is thanks to the support of the Patreon campaign. So yeah, big thank you to all of my Patreon supporters for making the channel possible. Uh, and if you want to support me, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. That's everything. So yeah, thank you very much, Devin, for joining me. Thank you to everybody for watching. Pleasure. We'll see you all next time. See you guys. Cheers all. Bye-bye. Bye. -byes. Bye.